Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies, the home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloweeny. I am one of your hosts, Ms. Belmore. And I'm the other host, Mr. Craigers. He is. And tonight we're taking a little sort of horror-adjacent uh, jaunt into uh, the land of more macabre, nostalgic, summertimey things uh, with a discussion on... Uh, 19, 1980, the, the 1982 novella, The Body, and the subsequent 1986 yes. questionnaire. Yeah, 1986 film, Stand By Me, by Stephen King. <laughs> if you didn't know. If you didn't know. <laughs> you didn't know. And then directed by Rob Ryan. Mm-hmm. I will say, when I, when I watched it with my sister, and they did the, the like, rock fight scene, she was like, this reminds me of Stand By Me. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, and one of uh, one of his like amazing sort of like non horror, you know, shorter works, mm-hmm. um, that he's known for, uh, like from the same collection of the body is in, like Shawshank. Yep. Um, and apt pupil, mm-hmm. which is horrifying if not like horror. Right. Yeah. yeah, well, in the, yeah, I feel like that's kind of how a lot of them are in that collection, because it's more like, like, yeah, like real life horrifying as opposed to, um, you know, like Pennywise. Although the body does take place in the, uh, in the Stephen King macroverse. Yeah, so yeah. It's, he's out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's set in Castle Rock. Yeah. And, uh, I th- Shawshank, they mentioned. I have a list down here of all the things that like, like the different connections. Items. Yeah. Yeah, I know that, and I know they mentioned Jerusalem's lot. Mm-hmm. I think they mentioned, I don't remember if they mentioned Derry in the same I don't, list of towns. I don't think they do, mm-hmm. but um, a couple characters show up. There's connections to Carrie, there's connections to Skeleton Crew, I think. Um, and a few of the characters in this are have small minor roles or are mentioned in other books as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, like I know the well, we can talk about it. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Cool. There's uh there's a lot going on in uh this episode. Mm-hmm. Um which is episode 99. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there, kids. God, miles almost centralians, centurions, centenarians, or is that the Roman? I can be like the Roman guard. We're we're almost a Roman legion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're almost there. We're almost there. Whatever it's called when you hit a hundred, but we're not there yet because we got to do this episode first. We do. Um, shall we do a bit of a read, watch, and listen check-in? Before? Sure, because I feel like there's, I always try and like, try and keep tabs in my brain. That way I don't forget. I've, I've given up. I just write it down. Yeah. Well, the biggest thing that I think we both can share in this is obviously Stranger Things. Correct. Yeah. Um, as of this recording, volume one of season four has been released. And I think there was a teaser. That came out for the next one. Yes. 
teaser for volume two, which is just the remaining two episodes of the season. Which I hear are long as shit. Yeah. <laughs> Last I checked, episode nine, the finale is going to run two hours and 20 minutes. I like how they took like a little bit of what Game of Thrones did and said, you know what? Let's <laughs> just go longer. That's just wow. Since Game of Thrones started really pushing the, the episode lengths towards the end. Yeah, and they're like, not as many episodes, but they'll be longer. And everyone was like, yeah, but what if they were better? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Stranger Things. We mm-hmm. have talked about it a little bit. We have. Off yes, record. no one believes me that I called the uh, Vecna reveal. Like, No one believes you. <laughs> I didn't call the, the details because obviously we hadn't met the character who is Vecna, but I called from the jump that it was going to be either one of the, I said to my sister, I was like, I think it's going to be one of those kids. By the end of the first episode, I was like, it's one of those, one of those kids from that 11 was walking around. One of those little shits. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, no. Well, no, just it's, as we've discussed, it's very straight horror this year. Yeah. A pretty dark uh, season so far. Um, which I've enjoyed. Yeah, it's very Nightmare on Elm Street. Very much so, lots of nods. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the biggest story, oh, yeah. <laughs> including the man himself, Robert Englund. <laughs> it's funny because you see his silhouette before you see him, and I was like, oh my God, is that Robert Englund? Like I could just tell from the shape of his face, like the shadow. Yeah. Pretty cool. Um, he did great. Uh, I thought his his little sort of not like not a cameo, but like a yeah, little like a bit part. Yeah, yeah. Which it's funny because you and I have now discussed that Nightmare on Elm Street exists in Stranger Things, right? But Robert Englund plays a character in Stranger Things. So is this the universe where Tom Tucker got to play? <laughs> <laughs> Freddy Krueger, we have to assume. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Uh, solid season, I think. I love that they kind of like shift the tone a little bit each season for Stranger mm-hmm. Things um, to do whatever it is they need to do with the story that season. Um, I'm curious where things are going to go for the final two episodes, aside from like, you know, I think everybody's going to be reunited, obviously. Right. Um, <clears throat> well, you and I did the, the timeline math and Chernobyl should be happening. You know. Right about this time in, in the world. You know, they're still in Siberia. Because uh, it's April 1986. Uh-huh. So just say it. Yeah. If there's a yeah. kid, I like, I, I will feel so vindicated. I like, yeah. <laughs> Called it from season two. Fucking got it. Uh, Speaking of the Russia subplot, I really don't want um, what's his the guard to die. Oh yeah, the uh, well, he's speaking of Game of Thrones. um, Yeah, Jack and Bar. Yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, it's a bummer because I do miss Alexei. He was great. Well, they're always like, you know, strangers, you know, like Alexei last season, Bob in season two, mm-hmm. um, Barb, Barb and some who people. you hate. 
I hate. It's <laughs> um, always like a beloved supporting character introduced in the season that is later killed. So it's, I feel like it's either um, him or Eddie. Him or Eddie, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> we had the, we had, we had our scares with Max and Steve, um, but mm-hmm. I, I, I think they'll be okay. I will say the bit, obviously. At this, I mean, spoilers at this point. If you haven't seen it, I, I don't know how to help you. But um, I like warn anybody. But like, come on. But spoilers. Um, the they really did get me when um, Nancy got got because when she started climbing up, I was like, okay, Steve's gonna get stuck here. It's gonna be a whole thing. And then as soon as like that started happening, I was like, <gasps> yeah. I was I was also kind of expecting the the reverse of that, and then yeah. I was like, oh shit. Yeah. Uh, Nancy. <laughs> Nancy. Yeah, definitely a little worried for Nance. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't have a favorite song that we know of. Babe, what is Nancy's favorite song? <laughs> How do we get Is she also a Kate Bush fan? <laughs> what is popular at this time? <laughs> Can we just take Max's tape? Will that work? Did uh, Babushka come out yet? <laughs> yeah, or Wuthering Heights. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah so we'll see what happens there that was pretty good um yeah, yeah and big big season for max big fan of that yeah big that she season. got she got some big stuff gritty made a really nice his own version of that scene if anyone wants to check out Gritty's social media of the running up the that max, yeah <laughs> oh my god right it's like he's clearly at a green screen like on a green screen and they just inserted it Oh, that's Max that. into the scene, and he's like running, you know, the way that he runs. So incredible! Yeah, Vecna would um, never. He, he'd be too scared of Grinch. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh, this is something else. <laughs> something worse than the mind flare. That's the ultimate villain of Stranger Things. Stranger Things. <laughs> the last scene is just going to be pretty opening his googly eyes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so saw, watched that, tried to see men, couldn't. Oh, you you couldn't? (laughs) It wasn't playing like anywhere near me. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I had to get in real quick. It was like, it was like a snappy two weeks and it was out of the theater by me, but I did catch it. I heard that it's going to be on in August on streaming, so. Yeah, I mean, the window is so short nowadays. I know. Yeah, yeah. like, unless you're, like, a, a Marvel film, I feel like they're, they're, like, in and out. Yeah, or, like, everything, everywhere, all at once, which is yeah. still the theater by me. Yeah, saw that. That was great. That was great. Um, um, and then I also want to see The Black Phone. That's yeah, great. that'll be, it's, like, two, whatever, two or three days away as of this recording. Mm-hmm. Very excited for that. Um. Oh, I also saw a Watcher, okay. um, which was exactly, I think, what you would expect it to be, but it's it looked really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, very curious to see what Chloe Okono will do next. Um, she she did one of the shorts in the most recent oh. VHS. Right. Um, and this was her first feature. Um, with Maika Monroe from It Follows. Um, oh. 
So she's just like constantly just getting stalked in horror movies. I guess that's her thing. <laughs> but it was pretty creepy. You're really good at looking over your shoulder. Yeah. And then, I did. Uh, oh, oh. No, no, no. I was just, I was going to transition from things I've seen. Like, like oh, oh, no, oh. You. Things I've read. Um, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I did do some. You read some spooks? I did. Well, I read the book you got me, the vampire book. Which, like, I couldn't, like, I did a a small preview in my Goodreads review, but, like, it requires, like, I feel like a thesis to talk about, like, what, (laughs) like, I I described it as, it was Blood of the Vampire, by the way, for those of you who don't know, by Lawrence Marriott, I think her name is. Hold on. Lawrence Marriott, am I right? Yes, you're right. Nice. Yeah, thank you. Um... And uh, I would call it like one of the earliest versions that I have experienced of a sort of socially conscious, um, like elevated horror, because it's about, you know, it's more, the character is more of like an energy vampire, kind of like Colin Robinson, I guess. <laughs> um, but she's unaware of it. Are they a baby energy vampire? No, <laughs> oh, that's, that's another thing I'm excited for, July 12th. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, um, yeah, it deals a lot with, like, talking about using, like, vampirism to talk about, um, topics that were pretty big at the time, like, uh, how everyone was very into eugenics, um, and, like, racism and that sort of thing. Um, unclear where the author stands on that, and I don't really, you know, care. Um, but, um, I think a lot of, I've been, I was reading a lot of articles from people in terms of, like, you know, reading it as, you know, no matter what she meant by it, like, I think it was kind of like one of those sort of part of darkness things where people get into weird debates about it. Um, But um, it's a very interesting take on it. Um, But definitely some content warnings there for like, you know, language, Mm -hmm. anti-Black racism and suicide. Um, But really very, it like got me, I was thinking a lot about it. even like even now I'm like it's just such an interesting and it's a late vampire novel it's 1899 Mm. so you would have had Carmilla and Dracula both out and very popular at this point Mm -hmm. um but no it was a really interesting like very very unique take on on vampirism and um yeah it just felt like it's sort of like an early version of like you know that sort of classic I don't know how Supernatural did it I think they did some version of this too but like how Buffy would take supernatural things and have them be stand-ins for some sort of social issue <laughs> yeah yeah more so in the beginning of Supernatural than later but yeah yeah, yeah. um that was pretty cool um and I also watched I finally watched we're all going to the world's fair which I felt mad oh about. you felt mad about it you said yeah I felt like it was an interesting concept that could have used like a lot more fleshing out. That's kind of how I thought about men. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. I see what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But it for me, it didn't like quite get there. Get there or yeah. like go all the way through the goalposts, so to speak. Right. Um still a really solid movie. Mm-hmm. But- well, and what's her face is getting like a bajillion roles now 
Jesse Buckley, yeah. Yeah. Well, she's a phenomenal actress. Yeah, no, I liked her a lot. Um, I've I got like turned on to her um, for the most recent season of Fargo. She played, I didn't even know she was in Fargo. Look at her. Yeah, she's she all over the place. This, like she plays this crazy um like angel of death nurse. Oh my like, god. She yeah. Be good at that. She was amazing. She was the highlight of the season. Yeah. Um so I love seeing her get like all this work now. Um, yeah, cuz I saw her she was in Chernobyl. Yeah. Um she was Ludmilla in Chernobyl and then I saw her again in um The Lost Daughter. Yeah. Um, her her Oscar nomination this year. Yeah. So and now she's in this, and she's just all she's and she's in like some things coming up too. I think that um, I was like, oh my god, look at her. Yeah. Popping up. I'm like, I'm happy about it. Yeah. yeah. She's very talented. Um, for myself, I uh, I'll just real quickly mention that um, I read two horror novels recently. One. Um, Hidden Pictures, mm-hmm. um, which was like a fun, creepy, creepy kid ghost kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, recovering addict, she takes this like cushy nanny job for this bougie family in this very wealthy neighborhood to look after um, their kid. Uh, and then the kid starts drawing pictures that mm-hmm. become gradually more disturbing classic, like, classic kid behavior yeah like a shadowy man like standing in the woods watching the house mm-hmm. and then pictures of that shadowy man dragging a body through the woods mm-hmm. and you know then she starts experiencing things and is like what what's happening here the picture's trying to tell me something um pretty good <laughs> wild swerve <laughs> in the third act but okay <laughs> uh, it, it actually was like it gets pulled off <laughs> but it's definitely like oh this becomes something a bit different <laughs> it's okay though um and then the other book that i read other horror book that i read was the hacienda oh yes i also read that ah what did you think we didn't i don't we didn't chat about it did we we didn't chat we just said you said hey i'm reading it too oh, and, and that, that was the end <laughs> of it um I thought it was very good. Um, I enjoyed like the way that it was very sort of classic gothic haunted house. Um, with more so in the first act, I feel like kind of like with this towards the end of it, it kind of swings into some other things. I also feel like it really telegraphed like, you know, what the ending was and what was going on. Like it's something that the reader could see from like a mile away, but the characters were like, I wonder how, who could be responsible? <laughs> yeah um but no i thought i thought the first act was really really strong um i was into the second act although it did start to lose me a little bit like the more sort of world building we did um but i thought it was a really good like you don't get books like that too many books like that anymore that's just like that sort of crimson peak traditional like gothic horror like the whole like the formula of like what is it they say like like woman in a nightgown in environment and that's like gothic horror yeah Yeah. so yeah Yeah, i would say i agree pretty much um i yeah kind of started to to find myself a little not irritated but like 
I didn't care for the priest character. The priest character? Um, The main guy. I mean, not that I didn't care for him. I just didn't find him super interesting. Yeah, I didn't find either of them particularly crazy. Yeah, the sister was more, or the cousin or whatever, who... I liked her. I was I was really interested in her as well. I was also interested in, I guess, minor spoiler, the mom, mm-hmm. the right. like the original sort of housekeeper, yeah. yeah. Who was like, um, yeah, and yeah, and just because like it was so apparent where things were heading from yeah. so early on, and there wasn't really a diversion from that. Yeah. Um. So I was, it was just sort of like. And I was just like waiting for the characters. Just waiting for the characters to get there. For a really long time. I was not my favorite feeling to have when reading, but I thought it was great atmosphere. That was Yeah, I loved the the sequence where they first go into like that little hallway. Yeah. That was very creepy. That was good. That was good. Yeah, that was good. So yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, well, unless there's anything else. I don't think so. I'm gonna, again, during the morning, I'm going to be like, damn it. <laughs> I forgot about this major thing. How will, how will anyone know that I read this or watched this? <laughs> this, is why, this is why I write it down, because I'm like, I don't know. Um, so, I think it's time to travel back a ways, right? Yeah, we, I can... Back into the good old days of summer. The good old days of summer. Um, as we move into the main part, uh, the main discussion for our episode this week, um, Stephen King's The Body slash Rob Reiner's The Stand, Stand By Me. The Stand By Me. The Stand By Me. The Stand <laughs> By Me. <laughs> a virus wipes out the world and four boys <laughs> go looking for a dead body. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the original patient zero. <laughs> <laughs> Let's shut me up and take a listen to the trailer. Oh man, wait to hear this. What is it, man? You guys want to go see a dead body? dead kid maybe it shouldn't be a party i'm never gonna get out of this town am i glory you think mighty mouse could beat up superman what are you crack i'll kill you i swear to god So let's start with our opening question, right? Um, 
which is, as always, um, for the main discussion, when did you first see this film and what were your impressions? And I think you can modify that question also to when did you first read the novella and what were your impressions? I'm going to answer. And then after you answer, I'm going to have a follow-up starting question that I thought of. I love it. I love everything about it. Fantastic. So I definitely like probably like everyone um, saw the movie before I read the novella. Um, And like, it was one of those things where it's kind of like the shining where I had seen pieces of it before Mm. I actually sat down and watched the whole thing. Like, I remember the train sequence from, like, I don't know, like, some, like, primal memory (laughs) in my little child brain, (laughs) because it was kind of like, you know, like, when you always tune into the Goblet Fire, and it's always halfway through the second task, it's, you know, you tune into Stand By Me, and it's always the train sequence. Always the train sequence. Um, So, that really sticks in my brain as, like... um, something I saw very early on. That and the leeches. I remember the leech scene a lot too. Um, mm. But I, it's one of those things where my mom, like she's very into these sort of nostalgic 80s summer movies, um, you know, like this and like, yeah, like fried green tomatoes, like a league oh. of her own, yes. like all that stuff. So I, yeah. <laughs> so I actually ended up after watching, re-watching this for, this i was like can we watch a league of their own tonight because <laughs> i was just like in a mode yeah but um uh yeah so like it was one of those things where my mom was like we're gonna watch this because it's awesome basically i think it was like on tv one day um so i was pretty young the first time i i saw it um but um and then the first time i read the novella was much much later um i actually have two copies of the because I have a copy of different seasons and then I have a copy of the novella by itself. Ah. So that's why I have two. But I read it probably a couple years ago. I first read the body. Um mm-hmm. like two or three years ago, I think. Nice. Um very similar, unsurprising. Um I I think I have mentioned this before on the podcast. Um I was that person who came to Stephen King's writing much later than the adaptations of his work. Like I grew up watching a lot of Stephen King movies, mm-hmm. but I didn't start reading him until college. Um, right, right, right. Uh, and so Stand By Me is one of those perfect examples. I can't pinpoint exactly the first time because it was just one of those movies that was just sort of always there mm-hmm. in my childhood. Um, I have strong memories of watching specific scenes yeah. like game scene and um, the pie eating contest. Right. Um, and like I can picture myself like, you know, in our living room growing up like on a summer day or like a summer night you know the windows open breeze is coming in so it's always been very strongly associated with summer for me um and yeah I read the body um at some point within the last 10 years (laughs) yeah I had to do that there for a second um when I decided to get all of Stephen King's stuff and try and go chronologically with a few exceptions. So 
Um, I guess I could look up exactly when I got to different seasons, but it doesn't matter within the last such and such. And it struck me um, uh, when I first read it that the novella is a bit more cynical. Right. Yeah. I was talking because I was telling a friend, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, we're doing this for the episode. And um, she was like, oh, like, how does it because she's like not she's like a tertiary Stephen King person like she like you know vaguely is like oh yeah so like how does it rank in terms of like adaptations and I was like it's one of those things where I feel like the you know the body is very good at being the thing that it is and Stay By Me is very good at being the thing that it is but from just like the way I I interact with both of them I feel like Stay By Me really elevated a lot of parts of of the body in that you know it hit like the right emotional mark that I think the, which, you know, of course, it's Stephen King, he's going to be a little bit, you know, um, pessimistic and, and that sort of thing in, in the stories, but um, it is definitely more cynical than um, the like kind of feel good of the, the movie. Yeah. Um, and I think because of that, and I think because of, you know, there's always that factor of like, when you're exposed to a particular version of a story first, mm-hmm. tend to hold that one yeah. a, a bit higher in regard. But like, I definitely prefer the movie over yeah. the text. Yeah. Um, but I still like the body. Yeah, no, it's one of those things where it's like, I can appreciate them. I, th- I feel this way about The Shining. I'm like, these are two separate mm-hmm. things that are good, you know, equally in the different things they're trying to do you know what I mean yeah um or like weirdly I feel that way about Wicked like the musical versus the book that's a great example yeah yeah very different things I like them equally but separately yeah um so that's my feeling about that but my follow-up uh intro question to you that I thought about a lot while watching this you know and you know because I feel that we are both sort of striving to be death positive folks um when was the first time you remember seeing a dead body a human body what a great starting question Mm um definitely nothing like uh the boys here there was no ray brower experience for me um i'm 99 sure it would have been uh, the funeral of my great grandmother. Okay. Um, I had been to funerals before she passed, but I was too young. I have no memory of those funerals. Right. I just know that I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, my my great grandmother, um, Eva, she died when I was six, I think. Mm-hmm six or seven so I have I was just at that the perfect age essentially right kind you're of, like core memory yeah it's like, it's like <laughs> a form of core memory to get my little gold orb or whatever yeah. inside out <laughs> um and um and understand ish you know that she was gone right um and so yeah I have, I have clear memories of going to the funeral home and seeing her in the casket and um uh 
I don't know if it was like we came early or if it was later, but at some point they like let me and my cousins like um, like touch her hands in the casket. And I vividly remember being struck at how not her person like felt, you know, like if you've ever touched a corpse. Yeah, a corpse, um, particularly one that's been prepared for a funeral, like that it's very hard, very cold, but also Mm -hmm. it's like, you feel like your hands come away with like a weird, not slime, but- Like residue? A weird residue, yeah. And that very, very much still sticks in my memory. Um, And I remember, the kids as it were like my sister and I and my cousins like we were sort of like there at the beginning and then we like went in a back room like during the viewings Mm -hmm. um the day or or two for the viewings and like colored and like Mm -hmm. I think people brought us games so we didn't have to like sit out with the grown-ups and stuff or whatever um but there was this weird air over everything because like the older cousins, which I was now just on the cusp of, like we finally kind of grasped what death was. But then like my sister, the younger cousin, they were kind of completely oblivious to things. So it was a very weird vibe, but I guess very clear still Mm -hmm. to this day. Um, And yourself? Yeah, so I have a similar one. I had to have a twofer for this. Um, I was four. Wow. It was, yeah, it was my great grandfather's funeral. Could not tell you his name. <laughs> I know his last name because everyone just called him like Grandpa Radenbush, but um, I don't remember his first name. It's funny because my one memory of him living and my memory of him in the casket are very interchangeable. Like, huh. I don't know if I'm like projecting what I, you know, one on the other or that sort of thing, or right. if he just very much was prince philip like in that he was a corpse (laughs) by the time he eventually passed away but he do you remember if he was really old when he he was very old yeah he um he was very old like it wasn't anything sudden or anything like that and i remember my parents were out of town when he passed because i think they were actually at a wedding so a family friend who was babysitting me and my sister took us to the funeral and my grandmother, for whatever reason, was very insistent that I like approach the casket and view the body. <laughs> so my sister has these stories. I don't remember this part. I just remember seeing him. But these stories of me being picked up and like held over the casket. You could like, like pay respect. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother was like, "Look at him." Um, <laughs> and I remember, you know, he's very. You know, that's the thing is, is like, I, I don't know if I'm projecting the memory of seeing him in the casket on the one memory I have of him in life, because I remember him not looking very different, because mm. he had very sunken eyes to begin with. Um, he was bald, you know, like, I remember a lot of his features, and I would describe them to my parents, they'd be like, yeah, that's, that's what he looked like. So, you know, one of those is the real memory. Yeah. Um, but I remember that pretty pretty vividly just because like he, what you would imagine a corpse would look like was this man um, either in the casket or um, the memory I have of him is sitting in the corner at my like dad's uncle's house at some family function. Um, He's very old and had a cane and we kind of just like sit in the corner. Um, 
it's always this it's always the super old folks right just yeah. like sitting and like surveying their kingdom in a way yeah. <laughs> yeah that was basically like my my one living memory of him and then seeing him in the casket but i the first time i sort of saw and i, I didn't actually see direct so two i guess in terms of like out in the wild as it were um i one time had been at the front, I guess, just before they shut down the highway of an accident. Um, so by the time they were letting us through, you know, I was able to pass the sheet over. You know, I remember seeing, I was in oh, high school and I remember seeing the sheet over what was clearly a past um, motorcyclist. And then a couple of years ago, my sister and I on our way back from a Hans Zimmer concert if you can believe that um we were in traffic awesome it was sick um we were in traffic because people were rubbernecking because on the other side there had been an accident and you know i wasn't driving so i looked over because you know if you're like lights i don't know it's 10 o'clock at night i looked over and i saw somebody behind a um fire truck laying on the ground not covered so that was, I was like, oh, okay. And that, that kind of stuck with me for a little while afterwards because really? I, I kind of felt bad that I had even looked because I didn't mean to see that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a woman who had passed away in a car accident. Um, so I was thinking about that a lot though um, while watching this just because I feel like so many people, Stephen King included, had stories about the first time they saw a dead body. Yeah, and... <sighs> I think there, it's, it says a lot, right? That we, we were both able to recall uh, not only the first time it happened, but like, um, like in your case, when it happened in a sort of like unusual manner mm-hmm. or a, a way that like, is not like ideal in our right. society. Right. A way when you're not prepared, you know, you haven't, you're not going in knowing you're gonna see this. Right, right. Um, and that, we have those memories um, because, you know, what is seeing a body for the first time, if not in one way or another, whether it's subconsciously or consciously confronting your own mortality. Right. And that's it's, a big part we're of We're all holding the skull in, we're all Hamlet holding the skull at that moment. Yeah. And that's a big part of what this story is, the, right? The boys, you know, when they find Ray, um, it's, it is confronting their own mortality and, um, the idea of what lies in store for them. Um, but I thought it was also interesting that you um, brought up this question of um, your memory and which right. part of it is is real and here or there, um, mm-hmm. because I think that's the other major part of what this story is about is this question of memory um, right. and looking back and obviously like nostalgia and um, right. how that shapes the truth and the past and the present and the future and all these questions of right and what you remember about this. a situation now what how does it make you you know like how you were saying you understood then that it, you know this is what was happening at four i definitely didn't understand but it's like now that i know you know what am i projecting onto those memories right and interchanging because i can look at hindsight and understand everything that was going on exactly yeah, and I think that's part of the brilliance of this story, um, which we'll get into, is that uh, it's 
we're seeing it through a lens, you know, people often bring up the, you know, the rose tinted lens of nostalgia, but I think there's other lenses at play here too. Right. So great opening question though. Thank you. Let me uh, make sure very, you asked. very smart. Um, yeah, so maybe let's talk a bit about the body, um, mm -hmm. the novella by uh, our boy Stephen King. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh he's uh you know he's he's the horror connection here um uh so yeah do um do you want to maybe like give us a, the quick sort of rundown of um what's the deal with the body sure so um the collection that the novella was originally published as a part of um was at the time quote according to Grady Hendrix sort of like uh, oral history of this that he I don't know if you read that he put for I think it was like tour.com or something like that was the quote lowest bestseller of his of his books because it was the first time he really tried to dip his toes out of horror because you know at this point publishers would publish anything by him mm -hmm. and he was like okay well I have all these like little novellas that I wrote um if you'd be interested in that. And they were like, okay, great. So they put together a, um, <laughs> a collection based, you know, the theme being like each one represents a sort of different season um, by way of, you know, emotion, Shawshank Redemption is spring. Um, the apt, apt pupil is summer. The body's actually fall because he called it right. the body colon fall from innocence and then and it takes place at the very end of summer yeah it's labor day, day weekend yeah which and then in my head I, I always forget yeah because then I, there's really it's only mentioned really brought up at the end yeah that it's, it's like, like hey see you at school on monday right. or whatever um, but i think as i always like watch the movie or whatever sort of like at peak summertime yeah right? but, yeah again because technically like, it takes <laughs> sort of like the, my perception of the story but anyway right but technically it takes place Labor Day weekend end of summer um and then breath breath something the breathing breath. method the breathing method is Winter. which they're making a movie out of are they finally yeah they announced um last year the year before that it's in development wow that's um, it's a big jump between from in development into actually having a film but you know that's True. the starting point <laughs> But yeah, that's the one that hasn't been made into a movie yet. Mm -hmm. And kind of the one that everyone always thought, I don't know if they'll be able to, because it's very weird. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so keep an eye out for that. But um, anyway, it was basically his first sort of dip into like these more literary stories that he sometimes does. Um, it was right after, it was after Cujo, right? Yeah, because Cujo is another thing that's referenced in this yeah. even though it takes place before Cujo I mean I guess from the narrator's perspective the events of Cujo have happened yeah. but um yeah a lot of this stuff was written even before some of the things that came out before it just because he you know didn't think anyone was going to want to read them at the time yeah um so it was influenced according to Stephen King by two events um, in his childhood, the first of which was, this is something he says he doesn't remember himself, so keeping up with our, our theme here, it's something he was told um, happened to him by others. It's when he was four years old, I guess he came home from playing like very much like catatonic and, and pale. 
and it was because um, he had witnessed a playmate get hit by a train. Um, yeah. And I guess just, you know, did not hold on to the memory the way that you sometimes don't with things like that that happen. And then the other thing is that later in life, um, still a kid, a little bit older, a friend of him said, do you want to see a dead body? Because they had heard that a fisherman had drowned nearby and the body hadn't been like covered up or like taken care of yet. So they went to go see it. And he remembers like it being very sort of um, upsetting and like the kind of thing that you can't unsee, <laughs> especially wow. a drowned, you know, somebody who died in that way. Um, I think that's one of the more um, sort of disfiguring ways that uh, you can die in terms of what happens to the body. Um, but uh, that was very impactful on him. A contradictory yeah. story, however, or at least one that sort of plays into all of this is um, a former friend of his, George McLeod. McLeod? 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 Something like that. Um, who, I know. I know. <laughs> to, to whom the story is dedicated, which is another interesting sort of facet of this, um, claimed that it was plagiarized, um, that he had shown Stephen King a draft of a story that he had written about a group of friends who go to see the body of a dead dog that had a lot of the story beats that eventually become Stand By Me, but he never finished it, let alone published it. And when the original, when the body came out, he didn't really care. He said, oh, okay, like, you know, whatever. He was inspired by my story. It was only after the movie happened that he was like, hey, now, um, and asked Stephen King to give him credit and pay him some royalties. Stephen King refused and they just stopped being friends. Um, and to this day, Stephen King won't read anyone's drafts, like friends or fans or anything like that, out of fear of wow. being, uh, you know, having something similar happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the novella, as we said, connects to like the wider King multiverse. Um, which one day we will maybe do our full Dark Tower multiverse episode and like really get into it. But uh, basically most of Stephen King's novels are connected in one way or another to um, the multiverse. The ones that are not connected to like sort of the main universe are like still within the multiverse on different sort of beams in the of the dark tower it's all very complex but um this one takes place in the main sort of timeline universe of stephen king uh stories shawshank prison which is mentioned in a lot of stories um is mentioned here as one of maine's biggest prisons it obviously first appeared in rita hayward and the shawshank redemption also a story in different seasons uh the hometown of the dead boy is chamberlain which is the location of Carrie. Mm -hmm. There is a character in Carrie called Teddy Duchamp, but it's not the same one. It can't be. It's not the same, right? Yeah, yeah it can't. It's just like reuse of the name, but it, like people have like done the math or whatever, and it just, it's not possible. <laughs> um, Maybe it's like a, an, a different level. Right. Teddy. Right, because there's another one, one of the police officers who mentioned in this is also a sheriff in a couple other stories, but it's unclear if they can be the same person or not. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm also pretty sure that Ace 
Yes. Meryl is a character in Needful Things. Yes, and Nona. And it's which the is same. A, yes, he's yeah. in that and he's in Nona, which is a short story from Skeleton Crew. He's more of a, he's mentioned in Nona. I think he's an actual character in Needful Things. Yeah. Um, and then obviously Jerusalem's lot, Salem's lot, um, is mentioned by Gordy when he's talking about the, he's telling his like pie eating contest story. <laughs> Um, and I believe he also mentions Cujo when he's um, talking about the dog that they encounter. The narrator yeah. version of Gordy uh, talks about Cujo, uh, which canonically won't happen in the universe, I think, for like another 10 years. So right. it's like he's looking back on it um, and comparing it to Cujo. Um, but yeah, I mean, every single, as we've said, every single one of these stories, except for the breathing method, TPA, has been made into a uh, a film. Yeah. Two of them considered amongst the greatest films of all time. One bombed horribly. <laughs> <laughs> so have you seen it? I have not. I've heard only only really bad things about it. It's not great. Um Ian McKellen is good. <laughs> he's the he's the Nazi. Mm-hmm. Um they try and like make it a bit more uplifting than the novella, which is very dark. Yeah. Because the novella is basically about this kid getting like groomed into becoming like right. Hitler youth. Yeah. Uh, and then going on a, a shooting spree. Uh, in the movie, he's like, he like pushes back when he finds out that the guy's a Nazi and like which like I understand but I feel like Stephen like the point that Stephen King was trying to make here was very prescient you know yeah like you know it's it's one of those things where it's like I get it like this is what we'd hope somebody would do but that's not the reality um and it's not the warning we want to send to people either no yeah and it's the as written version is like I think very uh, relevant to today's times right. in terms of how people, particularly you know, young white men, can be so radicalized without mm-hmm. sort of them or anyone around them even realizing what's happening. Right. Um, anyway, <laughs> maybe uh, maybe if the breathing method does well, there'll be a remake of Apt Pupil. Maybe. Um, but yeah, that's basically the background on uh, the body. If you want to give us some background on on what what how how did we get from the body to stand by? Yeah, so um, it happened relatively quickly. Um, we mentioned the body within different seasons was published in 1982. The film comes out in '86. Uh, uh, so fairly quick jump, but it was kind of a rough road. Um, everything basically got started when, um, Bruce, uh, Evans, who's one of the screenwriters, read different seasons, um, shortly after it was published, really liked it. Uh, and he gifted it to, um, Karen Gideon, the wife of his friend and his screenwriting partner, Ray Gideon, uh, for her birthday in 1983, um, so she read it, really, really liked it, and then gave it to her husband who read it. Um, then he connected 
with his buddy and writing partner and the two resolved to make it their next project. They were just finishing up um, a movie called Starman, um, which did not do super, super well, but I think is kind of like a cult film. Um, so after they settled on uh, the body for their next project, they got in touch with Kirby McCauley, who was Stephen King's agent at the time. Um, and McCauley let them know that King was no longer interested in Hollywood um, because Christine had just- okay. uh, This is a funny statement. That <laughs> <laughs> he's not interested in Hollywood. No longer interested in Hollywood, you crazy, crazy LA people with your green teas and your <laughs> palm trees and your, your palm trees. Uh, no, it was more so because uh, the film adaptation of Christine had just come out um, and not done well at all. Um, and that kind of uh, hit him a bit hard. Plus, uh, you know, um, he was still simmering a bit over Kubrick's version of The Shining from uh, several years prior. Um, and so he kind of wanted to be done. So uh, in order to essentially get him on board, um, Macaulay told Evans and Gideon that um, the terms of the deal would have to be a hundred grand for um, King and 10% of the gross profits, um, which was considered a major hurdle because there weren't any big stars attached to um, the potential of this project at the time. Um, and eventually they ended up essentially like cutting that in half and um, King got 50 grand and a smaller percentage of the profits uh, to sell the rights. Um, so once that was... Um, sort of out of the way, um, they, Evans and Gideon connected with King and asked if there was anything biographical in the story. Um, and as you told us, there is <laughs> some stuff, but at the time, all he said to them was that uh, what isn't true should be true. Um, so people have riddled over they that. They were like, what the hell? And hung up. What exactly? <laughs> yeah, they were probably like, we think we're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they sort of like pitched what their version or their of the adaptation would be, which as we'll see is relatively close, although there are some key changes. Um, and, you know, King was like, all right, cool, go with God. Um, but they had a really tough time shopping this around Hollywood. Every studio essentially turned them down. After a long time, they got Adrian Lin to agree to direct and Martin Schaefer to produce. They were attached to Embassy Pictures at the time. Um, but when they took a look at the um, screenplay or maybe it was the story treatment at the time that uh, Gideon and Evans had wrote up, um, two of the three writers from Embassy were like, no one is gonna be interested in this. Um, so that kind of like put a slight halt on things. Um, but it didn't completely derail anything. So Evans and Gideon spent the next eight weeks writing the screenplay. Um, they made a deal not to produce the films themselves, although they really wanted to. Um, and a more experienced producer, Andy Scheinman, was brought in who teamed up with uh, Martin Schaefer. They became the main producers. 
Um, Adrian Lin's directing fee got turned down by Embassy um, and Evans and Gideon really wanted him. So they sacrificed half of their share of the gross profits in order to keep him. So he was out, he was in, he was out, he was in, he's back in, but he was working on a, another movie, a little uh, cinema event known as uh, Nine and a Half Weeks, which was going long. Um, that was kind of a, a troubled shoot. Um, and so um, he had to back out because he had promised um, like his wife and his family that he would go on vacation when he was finished with that movie. Um, yeah. And so he would not be able to start working on the body until the spring of the following year, um, which nobody at the studio wanted. Uh, you know, the writers didn't want that. So Lynn exited a director at that time. And the search began anew for someone else to take on the project. Um, and it ended up that uh, Evans and Gideon were part of an improv group at the time uh, that included such famous names, um, especially ones that would be attached to this project as Richard Dreyfus and Rob Reiner and Albert Brooks. Um, and Scheinman, Andy Scheinman, uh, who was on his producer, convinced them to show their screenplay to Rob Reiner, who was just getting into directing. He had done This Is Spinal Tap and The Shore Thing um, after being primarily known for playing Michael on All in the Family. Um, Reiner really liked it. Uh, he signed on in September of 1984. Um, he threw in a couple of ideas for some rewrites. He asked for some things to be tweaked. Um, and so some things were like touched up uh, over the fall of 84. Um, Reiner himself has talked about that he really identified with um, the character of Gordy and he, um, I guess was the one that suggested that Gordy be the focal character of the screenplay. I don't know how it was written beforehand. It wasn't like super clear because Gordy like is still the focal character of the novella. So I don't... <laughs> well, he's telling the story, but yeah, it's that's a good point. Yeah, I don't know I if it. That like really focuses on him as it's like I'm telling the story about this thing I did with my friends versus like he's right. just the mouthpiece for yeah the novella is kind of Chris's story yeah that's what whereas I was thinking it, like he's telling Chris's story right whereas the movie is more Gordy's story right well, regardless, so yeah, so that was Reiner's suggestion. Um, he felt really um, connected to uh, the Gordy character's sense of inadequacy, like, you know, when he gets compared to his brother, uh, Dennis, um, and, you know, Reiner felt a lot of that because he was struggling, um, you know, to get out of the shadow of his father, famous comedian, uh, Carl Reiner. Um, so, the new screenplay gets finished and sent over to Embassy uh, right before Christmas in 84. And uh, after the holidays, filming gets scheduled for the summer of 85. However, three days before the start of principal photography, Embassy was sold to Columbia Pictures. And they said they had uh, no interest in doing the film and that they were going to cancel it. 
So it's just like all this up and down and this back and forth. And it's like, they finally get there. And then like the plug is about to be pulled. But um, Norman Lear, who was the co-owner of Embassy and uh, um, the creator of All in the Family, essentially saved the day by donating seven and a half million dollars because he had faith in Reiner. Um, and so basically because of his personal contribution, the film was able to be completed without uh, Columbia funding. And they were essentially just like, all right, sure. It's not our money. Go for it. Um, about 300 uh, different uh, child actors, different boys auditioned for the four central characters. 70 of them got um, called back for the second round of auditions. And then the, um, the final four were chosen as it were. Uh, principal photography for the film went from June 17th to late August of 85 in and around Brownsville, Oregon, and near the Lake Britain Reservoir in California. Um, that's where I think they did the train sequence. <clears throat> um, and since Embassy was also planning to distribute as well as produce the film, um, once the film was completed, there was the new hurdle of there was no one to distribute it. So again, they had to make the rounds through Hollywood. Paramount turned it down, Universal, Warner Brothers, all of them passed. Uh, the head of production at Columbia, Guy McElwain, then convinced his own studio to give the film another shot um, and held a screening at his house. Um, and he talks about, or Evans and Gideon talk about it in an interview that um, he knew it was a good idea because during the screening, his teenage daughters were there and they were crying at the end of it. Um, and they were like, you know, crushing hard on River Phoenix and stuff. And he was like, oh, all right, we've got something here. So he gets Columbia back on board to distribute the film, but they have um, a bunch of edits. They want some cuts made to get rid of all of the F-bombs because uh, they don't want an R rating. Uh, but Reiner says no, because um, he feels that's important and it's um, realistic to how the boys would have talked um, back then. And so that causes some tension at the studio and McElwain ends up getting fired. And uh, David Putnam, who was the new production head, doesn't really like the film. Um, and he's kind of just like, yeah, we're gonna distribute it, but we're not gonna screen it for any critics beforehand, um, which is usually like a death knell for a lot of movies because then there's no official sort of like word out there. There's nothing to entice people to come see the movie um, if they're not already familiar with um, the title. And speaking of the title, Columbia also insisted that it be changed um, because they thought that the body sounded like a sex film or a bodybuilding film or a horror film. <laughs> and uh, they're not wrong necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, I don't know, I feel like a lot of stories end up getting their, their names changed when they get, you know, when they get adapted for films. And sometimes it's, like, stupid, and then sometimes you're like, yeah, I can see how, like, you know. And it, like, it, it, it matches the, you know, like, as we were saying, like, this is a much more um, nostalgic, optimistic film than the source material, so the body is kind of dreary but you know stand by me is you know yeah and it's 
and you know and we also have that element now where like that's all we've known it as so like mm. we're like yeah stand by me it makes sense you know it, it, of course that works but it's like yeah. but yeah I think probably it was the right call yeah um and the reason uh it became stand by me um was I guess you know sort of like after it came down that like oh hey the um the title has to change um they like I guess a bunch of them were just like sitting in a room trying to come up with uh different titles to appease Columbia and uh Benny King's Stand By Me came on the radio and someone was just like how about that and (laughs) that's why it was chosen um uh but yeah so there's a new title the film's ready to be distributed but it might be dead in the water because there are no official critic screenings and Evans and Gideon you know they're like desperate to save this movie they care about it so much they put in so much time they call Sheila Benson who is the film critic for the LA Times um, at the time to come to the cast and crew screening of the film that was being held at the academy and you know they're not she's like yeah I'll, I'll swing by they don't know if she's actually going to come she does um, after the screening, they, you know, they like nervously ask her, like, what did you think? Can we count on a good review? And all I guess that she would say to them was that you may not be disappointed, which imagine trying to sleep after that, like, sort of, yeah, cryptic, whatever. Um, so they take that. They're not super sure exactly what that means. Um, but then they talk about how uh, they went to a public theater on their own on opening day and they didn't see anybody waiting outside for it. And so they were like, oh shit. Um, and they went up to the teller and, um, and you know, they asked like, um, you know, like no one was here for Stand By Me. And uh, the teller told them that, no, actually there were so many people that they let them into the theater early. Um, and that the next three showings of the movie were also sold out. So it was only then that they finally, at the end of this process, like allowed themselves to breathe. So it was a bit of a rough road getting this movie to uh, to the screens, as it is for like every movie. But it's interesting to to think about that stuff now. Um, yeah, it's a lot of dropped. Uh a lot of drops and pickups and different, like I, I always think about that with movies when they make, you know, divisive changes that almost like weren't the choice. And it's like thinking about how different it would be. If, yeah. You know. Yeah, like uh, what's the one, like if Tom Selleck was Indiana Jones. Right, yeah, like stuff like that. But it's like, what would, what, what, what is that alternate? universe look like yeah <laughs> maybe it's the it's the uh the level where teddy duchamp lives in chamberlain and... in chamberlain <laughs> um so yeah um and uh just some technical specs about the movie the score was composed by jack nietzsche um the soundtrack is obviously quite recognizable um it was released on august 8th 1986 with 12 tracks of 1950s and 60s oldies that uh, all appear in the movie. Of course, most famously is Ben E. King's Stand By Me, 
which was re initially released in 1961. Um, it uh, sort of had a second wave of popularity thanks to the movie um, and sort of like went back up the charts for a good couple of weeks. Um, the train scene was filmed using a telephoto compression in order to make the train appear closer <coughs> to either the actors for close-ups or the stunt doubles um, for wider shots than it actually was, which you can kind of tell watching that mm -hmm. sequence. You're like, well, something was done here. I don't know exactly I don't what. Know what, but this looks off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, obviously they're not gonna like put people like in front of a train, so. Um, and when they were filming that scene, they used plywood planks um, across the track to make it easier and safer for them to run because I don't know if you've ever been like up close to a train trestle, but like those big boards are like mm -hmm. really far apart, actually. Interesting. Um, they don't look it when you're farther away. Yeah. So, yeah. So those are the sort of like, that's the background of the, um, of the film. Maybe, um, should we jump to some other like fun production notes and then talk about the release? Sure. Okay. Maybe we did all of the, oh, here's a good one. Um, so King was shown the film before it was released. Um, he came out to Hollywood to take a look. Um, he asked if he could watch it alone. Um, so they're like, yeah, sure, or whatever. And so I think they screened it for him um, at the hotel, like at in a conference room at like the hotel he was staying at. Um, and he was in there for so long after the movie ended. Cause like Reiner and uh, Evans and Gideon were essentially like standing outside waiting for him to see what he thought. And, you know, they heard the song playing over the credits and like it finished mm -hmm. and then they just waited and waited and waited. And he was, and like, he didn't come out. And they were like, oh my God, what the hell does this mean? Um, and they're like, what if he like, what if he left early because he hated it and we like missed him, like he snuck out or something. Um, but when he finally came out, uh, he was crying and he said to um, the other three men, he was like, those were my friends up there. Uh, yeah. So he was like very affected by it. He had to go up to his hotel room to like compose himself. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, then, he was like uh, probably waiting for them to leave, waiting outside. <laughs> I was like, I, I took wait, so long. He's like, I don't, I don't come out here. Um, and then he came back down, uh, you know, and he spoke to Reiner and the writers. Um, they went out to dinner. I guess they were out there for, you know, for a long time um, talking about the film and writing. And um, he told them the real story of the, um, who Chris Chambers was based on. Um, which was a childhood friend of his who was killed during um, a carjacking when he was older, um, or a truck jacking, I guess it was. Um, and then he also told them a bit about the um, real life person who inspired Ace, um, who King says he ended up encountering 20 years like later as an overweight, lonely alcoholic, like just sitting at the bar stool in his hometown hadn't really gone anywhere done anything um so that was just I thought that was interesting that uh mm -hmm. 
that he had such a reaction to to the movies yeah. like that. Um, and he has talked about, um, I think in a couple different interviews, you can find it that uh, while he thinks Misery is his favorite adaptation of his own work, uh, he considers Stand By Me to be the best adaptation mm -hmm. of his work. Um, and just some other uh, fun sort of like casting facts. Uh, River Phoenix originally read for the part of Gordy. Um, and uh, Ethan Hawke auditioned for Chris Chambers. Pre uh, Dead Poet Society. Yeah. <laughs> Very pre. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I could see that now, but it's also so hard because yeah. they're so cemented in the role. And then, um, uh, David Dukes, Dukes, not David name. <laughs> Yeah, fortunate name, yeah. Ted Bessel and Michael McKean were all considered for the role of the writer, as he's credited, basically adult Gordy, uh, before Richard Dreyfuss was selected. And uh, for two weeks leading up to the start of filming, Reiner had the four boys hang out all day and do exercises from a theater improv workbook um, to help build their camaraderie um, so that they would, you know, appear more natural as friends on screen, which I think worked and comes across. And then um, uh, the stunt doubles for the train scene were actually uh, adult women, small adult female stunt doubles um, that have- I was wondering, I was like, how do you stunt double a 12 year old boy? Yeah, well that's how, and they all had to have their hair like very closely cropped. You do the, uh, the Peter Pan. You, you Peter Pan it. And uh, that's exactly how they were able to do that. So, um, so the film was released on August 22nd, 1986. Uh, it ended up getting a total worldwide gross of 52 million against its $8 million budget, making an approximate $46 million profit, therefore a financial success. Uh, positive reviews called the film a treasure and praised the ensemble performances, particularly of Wheaton and Phoenix. The negative review said that Reiner's direction was too self-conscious and none of the drama was natural, which they're 12. Yeah, it's supposed to be a melodramatic. Yeah. Right. Um, during commentary for the film's 25th anniversary, oh yeah, that's when Stephen King called it the best adaptation of any of his works. And currently Stand By Me has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 91%. A uh, Metacritic score of 75 out of 100, which I think is low. I was going to say, but Metacritic sometimes is lower, but usually it's like in the 80s when you've got uh, Rotten Tomatoes that high. Yeah, I find that unusual. Um, the IMDb score is 8.1 and uh, the letterbox rating is 4.1 out of 5. So... Um, yeah, in terms of uh, where to go next, um, do we want to jump into some analysis or do we want to like talk about the boys and their characters? What do you, what do you, you feel? You tell me, what do you, I mean, we could do, I mean, do you want to do, when you see the boys and their characters, do you mean roll call or do you have some stuff you want to? Um, I like, I have, I, I think because like the performances 
are so, in this film are so realistic to me mm-hmm. and tied so closely to their characters. Like, I think if we do our roll call, it's a chance to like start our analysis maybe, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, okay, sure. let's try that then. All right. All right. <clears throat> Will Wheaton, yeah. So that's what we start with um, in the roll call. Uh, we have Will Wheaton gets a starring as, uh, starring Will Wheaton as Gordy Lachance. Um, so let's dig into um, Wheaton and Gordy and just sort of all of it. Well, yeah. the Stephen King self-insert, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Is Definitely. He grows up to be a writer. Yeah. Um, um, and does he, does he, I can't remember if he mentions, I don't think in the movie, but in the novella, doesn't he say that he writes horror stories? I think so. Or yeah. they mention, I think too, like somebody has an off comment in the, like just a one-off comment in the movie about like writing. Like, oh yeah. Like I think maybe when they're asking him to tell stories, they say like, not one of those horror stories you like to tell or something like that like somebody somebody says something to that effect yeah that's yeah that's i think that's what i'm thinking of yeah but yeah no i um i think like you know and this comes up with all of them but i think for me like and you know you having grown up as a cisgender boy can (laughs) talk more (laughs) about this than i can but i think um a big thing for me throughout the, the movie is what they're all kind of dealing with in their sort of own coming of age and, you know, possibly the coming of age of any young fellow is sort of like the expectations of our society's view on what masculinity is and should be in various forms for each of them. And for Gordy, it's, you know, he's got, um, you know, this older brother who was very athletic, very charismatic, who passed away very unexpectedly. And like, you know, all of this weight of being like that sort of golden, you know, boy, that golden, you know, like young man is now thrust Mm -hmm. on this kid who's like a lot more sensitive and very introspective and, um, you know, not traditionally masculine as far as like his father is concerned and that sort of thing. Yeah. absolutely um yeah and I think Gordy is primarily the way we explore that in the story um because he's yeah because he's that focal character but but also because he's he has uh he has the creative edge to him Mm -hmm. right you know he likes uh telling stories and um sort of entertaining his friends that way and finding value. Um, And it's through him that we see the rest of this world slightly exaggerated, I think, than how it actually would have been. You know, like this question of memory that we touched on earlier in the episode, like, his friends are so sort of like, like they each fit into a very specific slot, right? right? 
and the bullies are just like so horrendous evil yeah (laughs) yeah and his parents are so cold and distant Mm -hmm. um you know and Denny is just this like fantastic ideal and he was wonderful um and it's 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 how Gordy's looking back at all of that right or like that's the perception of all of these people of him as a child where like in reality like he probably would have fought with his brother sometimes or like his brother would have considered him a pain in the ass Mm -hmm. or like like yeah his parents were clearly detached after Danny's death but like did they outright like hate Gordy like just like truly ignore him at dinner and maybe not you know like that's what fascinates me so much about uh the Gordy character and by extension I guess the way the story is written and told is that it's it's all through this hyper hyper hyperbolic hyperbolic version yeah Yeah. of everything that would have been but at the same time it's also super accurate I feel like to Mm -hmm. um how you feel when you're that age and when you're and I feel like it's kind of like when you go to the theater and movements are exaggerated like nobody moves in that way but that's the way they move in a theater production and that's the way you've come to expect like sort of scenes to play out and people to be acting and I feel like it's the same thing here like when you're watching a movie about a bunch of 12 year olds you know going on some sort of like you know, adventure in the backwoods of Maine slash Oregon, um, which is in itself a weird change, all aside, the fact that they said it in Oregon. But anyway, when you're watching that sort of thing, um, you expect a certain sort of, you know, like, you know, bullies are always going to feel like, you know, 10 times bigger than they actually were. And, you know, it's all going to feel very... um, like the most dramatic thing you can imagine and the most, you know, like, you know, how many times have you tried to tell a story about something you did in childhood and people are just like, "Mm -hmm, okay, like they don't really have a reaction to it. And you're like, no, you don't understand. Like at the time, this was the scariest thing that could have possibly happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or the coolest thing or like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and then I think Wheaton, He's so good at, you know, as this side of Gordy. Like, you just you just want to give him a hug. Like, yeah. you know, like... He's a sweet little boy. Yeah, and just during that tough but, like, wonderfully beautiful scene between um, he and Chris where, he, you know, he's like, my dad hates me and that breakdown is just so like it gets me every time mm-hmm. um and yeah I don't know he I've seen a lot like um over the years but like definitely in sort of like preparing for this episode like you know what people involved in making the movie say the reason this worked so well and one of the reasons this movie holds so much weight is that the boys were their characters Right. And like Will Wheaton has talked about before in interviews, like, 
he was shy and unsure of himself at that age. And he was coming from um, an emotionally abusive home um, where uh, another sibling was the golden child and he was always sort of messing up, you know? And River Phoenix um, was, yeah, sort of like this cool leader type, like very kind, genuine person, like guiding them along the way. Corey Feldman was very, very angry at the time. Um, Jerry O'Connell was just sort of like this, you know, the younger goofy, he was making everybody laugh all the time. And I think when you think, when I think about that and how much he has identified with his character, it just, it makes it seem all the more natural and what is already a very naturalistic performance, I feel like. Mm -hmm. um so speaking of very good performances and very natural performances next we have river phoenix as chris chambers um i think uh he should have won an oscar for this yeah yeah Uh, no, he, he, among, of all of them, like, is the one that just always surprises me when I rewatch it about, like, just how, like, emotionally intelligent he seems in, in the role for, I don't know how old he was when he, um, was I think he it? was 14. Yeah, so he's obviously still a pretty young, pretty young kid, but, like, just seems very aware of, like, the weight of, um, that you know the character carries you know what the story and his backstory means um and just able to really articulate all that in a way that you really don't expect a a child actor to to be able to do and to like be able to like be you know and this is true for both of them but like especially like River Phoenix was kind of I think like a sort of maybe not quite at this age but sort of like would go on to be sort of like a, a heartthrob type type guy like yeah. you don't expect them to be able to like cry as easily as they do and as convincingly as they do and you know potentially as like you know honestly as they do as well at that age yeah which um uh in the one interview i listened to with will wheaton he talked about the day they were filming that scene and um i guess river phoenix was having a little bit of trouble like sort of connecting with the, the speech, the monologue. Um, and so Rob Reiner pulled him aside and was like, you know, what Chris is saying here is essentially like, um, when he realized that adults that were meant to protect him weren't always gonna do that. You know, the teacher that blames him for the milk money and all that. And he's like, can you think about a time where an adult has let you down? And like, then, Phoenix got it and like the very next take is the one that's in the movie Mm -hmm. it's just like again that ability to connect so genuinely is very impressive um and I think if movies about kids and starring kids were more seriously considered I think he would have been a lock for Mm -hmm. an Oscar um and then I think the other thing with, with Phoenix and, and Chris that adds a 
tough, dark meta layer to this movie is of course, the fact that River Phoenix did die so young um, and prematurely just as he was sort of like really hitting his stride as a star. Um, and so like at the end of the movie when that image of Chris fades away on the screen, it's, it's eerie. It's, yeah. it's tough stuff. Um, So then we have, is it Jerry O'Connell next? No, no, sorry. It's Corey Feldman next as mm -hmm. Teddy Duchamp. Yes, who I know I just like from seeing different stuff, he definitely was going through some very emotionally abusive things. Um, he's talked about while filming this being very like angry at his parents who he felt um, were exploiting him um you know as we know as things would play out you know he was very close to michael jackson when he was younger um which turned into like you know its own sort of form of looking at different forms of abuses that this kid probably went through um from a very young age um but it's interesting because like i feel like the character he's playing is sort of that mixture of like like richie tozer and like I don't know like just like <clears throat> a little bit like sort of proto like the jokester but like he's got some serious stuff going on because you know we we find out you know he's got a um you know like a, an injury from when his father um basically shoved his head into a to a stove and like onto a burner in like a sort of a mental illness episode from um which, which is probably PTSD at the time we didn't, you know, as a society really know about it yet. Um, right. And he feels very um, self-conscious about, you know, that and then the way that his father is perceived and how that reflects on him. And, you know, the sequence when they're at the junkyard and um, the mm. mean junkyard man, I forget his name. Because um, um, they're staying in the junkyard to like camp out basically. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yes um and he you know he's got this dog who like he chases them off but they you know they get away and they're on the other side of the fence they're kind of like you know like messing with him and and you know teasing him and he just digs into all the kids and you know he he picks up on teddy and he's like yeah your your dad's a loony he burned your you know half your face or whatever and you know, Teddy said, like, you know, he was basically like, my dad stormed the beaches of Normandy. Like, you know, he kind of relies on this um, vision he has of his dad and he wears his dog tags around everywhere. And um, I feel like it's another example of this sort of like, you know, we don't allow um, men to really have like space to have, you know, the emotional mature you know like the emotional conversations like to mature emotionally to like you know be honest about mental illness I feel like he's a really good example of like you know here's a man who has like the quintessential sort of like mental illness that men of his age at like that time in American history would be going through and it's sort of like you know it's it's something to like you know make fun of or um mm -hmm 
you know, it's something that's considered a flaw for him and, you know, the rest of his family. Um, and I always thought that scene was very big where he starts, you know, running at him and his friends are holding him back. And they're like, he doesn't know anything, you know, don't listen to him. And, you know, you know your dad. Yeah. 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 And, and, and like you were saying, like the, the parallels to Feldman himself, mm-hmm. you know, and everything he went through, all the anger he's had, the way like our culture and our society, like really like mocked him and tore him down when um, he was clearly trying to work through a lot of this stuff that he went through as a kid and you know when he was trying to take a stance and and call out um these people that perpetuated this abuse like long before everybody else was doing it and um being met with uh being met with like the junkyard man but like uh, as a whole society um it's 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 sad. I feel I feel very much for him, mm-hmm. um, and uh, then rounding out the main four, uh, we have Jerry O'Connell as Vern Tessio, sort of the uh, I guess the comic relief. I mean, like Teddy can be sort of like crazy and hyper funny but like yeah I feel like Teddy is the type that wants to make you laugh and um Vern is who actually makes you laugh yeah and like incident without me too and that's part of like one of the things he's trying to overcome is just he feels very much like people keep him around as to be the butt of jokes and you know he's constantly trying to keep up with um his friends and and to be you know think to be seen as cool as he sees his friends and yeah and that sort of thing and he does give it give it back you know like he'll mm-hmm. he'll clap back here and there which i feel like a lesser version of this character that was like more archetypey would just like sort of like slough along and take it and be like you guys, and Vern does a little bit of that, but he'll also sort of like, you know, turn it around and be like, your mom or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like it was basically, like I think of him a little bit as, um, oh, what's um, Ben from It, like a version of Ben with It from It, yeah. but had like a little bit more of a backbone and was like a little bit more confident. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, and wasn't um, when they were announced that they were um, doing like the new version of it, and everyone was like to Jerry O'Connell, they're like, "You should play adult Ben." Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, "Well, I'm not like that husky anymore." <laughs> and they're like, "Well, neither is adult Ben." He, he gets hot. <laughs> yeah, he gets hot. Jerry O'Connell got hot. Like it could have worked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think just in terms of like specifically talking about characters and performances, um, not necessarily everyone else in the cast, but I did want to touch on Kiefer Sutherland as Ace Merrill. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, we don't get a lot from the text about Ace, but I feel like Kiefer 
place him like almost like you know like you sense that there's some sort of pain there mm. some sort of backstory there to like you know like you know basically everything we see of him is just like very stereotypical stephen king 1950s bully um right <clears throat> like he, this character has been in several different stephen king works but i just feel like Kiefer sutherland like gives it like i don't know like there's just some sort of like pain or darkness there like he feels very dangerous with so little to actually say like just in the yeah. presence and the way he carries himself like it feels like there's a lot more there going on than what's what's in the text what i really like about that performance is that he never raises his voice mm-hmm. like he's always he always speaks softly even if he's saying like these really like intense horrible things yeah like everyone else in this movie i'm pretty sure is like shouting at one point yeah nice and there's something about that that's very menacing um but yeah like you said very uh typical king bully right like he's yeah. not just mean he's like malevolent yeah, it's like the most evil, which again, like makes sense in terms of like who's telling this story and about what, like you would imagine this to be the most evil thing you could possibly think of. Right. Is, you know, some older kid bully. Yeah, yeah, he's magnified just like everything else. Um, do you think he really would have hurt Chris? Like, do you think he would have killed him in <clears throat> a confrontation? Um, I feel like he definitely puts out the air that he would have, um, you know, it's one of those, and again, it goes back to like, I feel like there's something going on under the surface here that, you know, isn't obvious to the rest of us, um, that I feel like could, you know, very much like, you know, he, he could have done it. I think he definitely stands down pretty quick when, I mean, obviously like there's a gun pointed at him, but it's a pretty easily diffused situation um, and I feel like, you know, he gives into that pretty quickly. Um, but I also think if it had gone on for much longer, he would have, he would have done it. Yeah. Bad dude. Yeah. I think one of the best, like the best sort of character moment for him is when they're doing that sort of drag race on the road yeah. and the other cars coming down and you know <laughs> they're like hey man you gotta all right you lost like it you know move out of the way because he's driving on the other side of the road and he's just not about to well, move for anyone not gonna move for the truck not gonna like his car is full of, of you know it's not just him in the car either he's like carrying passengers and he just doesn't even blink um yeah. and runs a truck off the road like a, a lumber truck i think yeah i like kind of always forget about that like every time I watch the movie and I'm just like what the fuck like Like, I think it's such a great scene without saying really anything to just say who this guy is and and what he's like right and to and it's also good because like we don't we don't really come back to Ace and his crew until the end when they 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 show show up up to have the yeah, because they drive. These 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 knuckleheads yeah. were like going for two or three days and they just drove 20 minutes to <laughs> like, well, here to we the are. same spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um 
Yeah, I think, and just in terms of the rest of the cast, worth pointing out uh, would be John Cusack as Denny Lachance. Yeah, um, I always forget that he's he's in this. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, unbelievably like sweet, like unbelievably in the sense that like this is a such a picturesque human being, right? That um, you know, it's like sure, yeah, I'd miss yeah. him too. <laughs> It makes me think of like kind of that thing where like I laugh about this in regards to my grandma a lot. Like before my grandfather died, like she was always like, they were always like at each other's throats, it seemed like. Mm-hmm. In that way where like they had been married. Been together long enough. Yeah, for so long. And they would just be like, ah, this, oh, shut up. Oh, da, 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 yeah. da. Where's the whatever? But then after he died, it was like, she, she never says a bad thing about him. Oh. Like, oh, my father was so sweet and he was so this and wasn't he just da, 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 da. And it makes me think of that thing where basically don't speak ill of the dead, right? Mm-hmm. Like after someone dies, we all usually um, fixate on the really, really good things about them. And you don't often bring up the parts yeah. and that's what this portrayal of Denny made me think of Gordy is obviously remembering him in the best possible light um but I do love that moment when they're at the dinner table and he's like I liked your story Gordy yeah he's like hey did you did you read Den- or, uh, read Gordy's story it was pretty good and yeah I love that yeah um and then lastly for our roll call, um, maybe just briefly talk about Richard Dreyfus as the writer. Yeah, no, it's funny because I, I'm sorry, like Family Guy really ruined a lot of the Richard Dreyfus parts for me. In terms of <laughs> taking him, that. <laughs> yeah, like when they're taking him fully seriously, he's like, whose kids are these at the end? He's like, those aren't my kids. Yeah, he's looking <laughs> at them. We're not play wrestling, we're real wrestling. <laughs> Yeah. Um, when they do, I do like the Family Guy stand by me, but um, it's pretty. Good. Yeah, the ending bit where he walks out, and he's like, "These are my kids." These We're actually fine, and the kids are like, like fucking, like trying to kill him. <laughs> they like come over with a baseball <laughs> bat. Yeah, with a weapon or whatever. Um, but no, besides that, I think he does a good job. I mean, like you know, as a sort of narrator, like I feel like this is um. I mean, this is the movie I most think about it with, but I feel like there was sort of like a, um, you know, sort of run of films in the 80s where you had this male narrator, um, or not this male narrator, I'm sorry, this like older narrator, usually male, talking about a story as it was happening with younger kids. Um, And we kind of had a little bit of a revival with that. Like I remember, do you remember, uh, I forget the name of the show, but the Garcia's on Nickelodeon. Yeah. It's, John Leguizamo played the older version of the main looking character. Looking back. Yeah. Um, and now like the Goldbergs. What was um, that? You have um, oh, the Sandlot. The Sandlot. Sandlot. Yeah. Like so like I there's a lot of those, but this is the one I most associate it with, I feel like, because he just yeah. does such a good job like narrating. Um throughout. This- and I think it's a real art too, even from the for the writers to figure out where to put the narration pieces yeah and he just and like he has that like sort of like 
gravelly, like, I don't know, like even his voice is like nostalgic in a way. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Like, the way he delivers his lines, I guess, is um, tinged with that sort of like glossy edge almost. And I mean, like, how great is that ending line? Right. Which he doesn't say, he just types and they let us read it, I think. Yeah. And like, I think the brilliance of it for me is that I always think that he says it out loud Mm -hmm. because I'm hearing his voice say it as I read it. Right. Um, Which which is in the novella, but it happens way earlier. It's not like at the end of the story. so yeah 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 um so that's our cast um or at least the main cast um now we'll move into a little bit of analysis of the film we've been doing a little bit here and there obviously well um we'll contextualize a few more things is there anything in particular you wanted to um touch on Maybe. I mean, we touched on a lot of it, how we feel about, you know, like what the boys are going through, what it represents. I mean, again, you know, it's interesting because it's, you know, well, I definitely like, you know, got down in the dirt and stuff like, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, like hanging out with three other boys my age as also being a boy. You know, I think there is a certain level of like, um, you know, experience there that similar but different i mean like we had our own things that we did you know kickball in the street and that sort of thing getting poison ivy everywhere um you know and and playing those sorts of games and sort of like remembering um those kind of things but to me like i feel like sort of like okay it's a coming of age story you know it's about a loss of innocence and here you know obviously the loss of innocence like in the literal sense is like seeing you know, the body, seeing death, seeing that's actuality, and that's its whole thing. But I think, you know, like what it ultimately is, is the body represents, you know, the things along the way, which were like, um, friends read along the way, Um, (laughs) which is like, um, you know, like the the true dark underbelly of reality coming, you know, sort of clawing its way in to, um, you know, this, the story of you know you know a bunch of boys going out you know on the out on the lamb and you know going on a sort of adventure at the end of the last summer they're kind of um going to spend together like i i see this movie and i think of i don't know if you saw this going around on the internet um a couple years ago i think it was on tumblr but it may have made its way onto other social media but it was basically this post that was like you know at some point in your life um, you were hanging out with your friends, you know, doing whatever, age 12, 11, whatever, however old you are. And you all got called home for dinner and you all went home and it was the last time you were ever going to play together, but you didn't know it. Oh, damn. Like, there was some point where that, ha- like, and I think about that when I see this, because that's kind of what we're seeing is it's like, you know, you know, this is the last time you're going to be together that way, but you don't know it yet. Yeah, that that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just yeah, it just always makes me like this is what I think of as sort of 
percent. And then like, you know, I was sifting through my brain trying to be like, well, when, when, what, when would it have been like, how, you know, and like what would right. we probably doing and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And then, yeah, and then, and then it's just sort of that idea, like why, why didn't it happen again? And it's right. just that, that's very sort of like, not, it's not really tangible. It's just like, you just sort of slowly drift apart from certain people. And sometimes you hang on to those friendships and that's awesome. But I feel like so much about what this movie is, is like the friends you have at a specific moment in your life, at a specific age where that seems like everything to you. And there's nothing more important than that. And maybe that happens when you're around the same age as the boys, maybe it happens when you're a little bit older, but I think that's something that we can all relate to. And when I think about this movie being a coming of age movie, I think what's interesting about it is that it's a coming of age movie without any sort of romantic angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you can, you can maybe read yeah. things. <laughs> but uh, so many other coming of age movies define coming of age as um, the awakening of like romantic and sexual attraction. Mm-hmm. But there are no, there's no girls um, in the movie. There's nothing like pulling them apart. It's not like one of those things where like, oh, one of them has a girlfriend and it like splits up the group or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's more just about like, that notion of becoming a, an adult against your will right and how you cope with that with your friends um yeah and i think about how like i don't know this movie is so unique in a lot of ways like there weren't a lot of movies about kids like this at the time um, and if there were, it usually involved some sort of like fantastical angle, mm-hmm. like E.T. or Poltergeist or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I don't know, it's just nice to see a story like this where it's just about like this moment in time that they don't even really know is going to define them and mean so much to them and it's it's about to be over and they have no idea and that's very beautiful and it's very sad and it's not something you can really appreciate I think until you are an adult yeah no and it gets you thinking too like you know like okay like yeah like where was I at this age like what are they doing now why don't we still talk because you know, when you get to that sort of little monologue at the end where he's going through sort of like the curtain call for all of them. Mm-hmm. And like, after having just gone through all this, you're like, there's no way these guys aren't friends forever. And how could they possibly just drift mm-hmm. apart? And then you look at your own friends who you were certain, you know, you were going to be with friends forever with and like the various reasons you don't talk to each other anymore. Yep. Yeah. And it's not because of anything, you know, nobody got mad at anyone. It's just, you know, you sort of like become like, that's like, you know, it's like you said, like, there's like a sort of like, there's many different ways to sort of like come of age or lose your innocence or whatever. And, you know, I think one of them that's not often explored in media is like, yeah, like the very mundane reasons you might just stop being, you know, having people in your life that you've had in your life forever who seem like, people who are going to be there forever. Um, yeah. 
And sometimes life just happens. And yeah, it just happens. And I think a part of why um, we idealize those friendships, both like when we're in them and they seem like the end all be all. And then like maybe later looking back as we're older is because it was just, it's just so much easier to maintain friendships when you're a child. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all we had to do was play when we were younger. Now, you know, it's like- I'm like, who did you vote for? (laughs) (laughs) Well, even, definitely that. But I mean, even just just things like, you know, as we get older, there's more people in your life and there's more people in your friends' lives. And so there's less time and you're competing for attention and maybe then there's romantic partners and you move away or you go to a different school or, you know, then you're an adult and you have adult obligations and you have a job and you have this and you don't live near your friends. And it's, you know, it's things that don't ideally happen to you as a child and so you have essentially the time to elevate your friendships more Hmm. and I think yeah well and with that that's like that's all that mattered right like when I think about you know back you know the memories that I do have of like that my version of that time in my life like yeah the only thing that ever mattered was like hanging out right like you know and you would do these things you know like the activities you would do like I was never like I remember becoming friends with you know the the people that I was friends with until I was probably about 11 10 or 11 or 12 um and then I moved away and then you know that's kind of what happens but um yeah you know like it just sort of like you know the only thing that matters is that you knew how to play together and you you were willing to play together and do the same things and you know like that's all that you know your world um you know contained like that's all that's all that you had to do that's all that was you know um expected of you at that time and then as you do get older and hit that age where suddenly you know like things like life events and interests and that sort of thing come into come into play mm-hmm. and suddenly it's about more than just hanging out and playing and suddenly it's about more yeah yeah and I think um yeah as we also touched upon the um human penchant for um rewriting our memories a bit and um you know, looking back at things, um, f- particularly from when we were younger and uh, maybe removing certain details. Um, you know, I think nostalgia is really about like the memory of safety and the memory of innocence as opposed to specific memories it's themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this movie in particular also, the novella but more so the film is like really highlights how that works um and why people are um like why nostalgia is so big in our culture right now um because people are so scared and people are so 
unsure. And I think the safety of it is okay, but it can be dangerous to live there forever. Right. Um, and even Gordy, I think, in his own way, um, is processing that throughout his writing of what happened to them as kids. Right. Yeah. You know, and like his like bit where he talks about when they finally see the body and you know, he explains it as like sort of like, you know, the, the kid had been knocked out of his shoes, the way that, you know, the train had knocked the life out of him. And like, he's got these sort of like platitudes and different ways of, of talking about it. And it feels like Gordy, the writer, retelling the story, sort of coming to terms with what that represented for, um, you know, his life and, and that point in his life and, you know, what would ultimately happen with his friends just even you know the following monday when school starts yeah you know like that you know the body is that you know like school starting is the body and and, is the and, band, right. and everything that comes into like them drifting apart like that is right know. like gordy going to take the more academic classes while like mm-hmm. chris Vern, and teddy are going to be in like shop and stuff yeah um yeah, yeah, and, and it's kind of about that, right? And that that this idea that Gordy um, is, re- we see him very resistant to face the idea that his friends could potentially bring him down as Chris, you know, uh, phrases it, you know, like he has a chance to get out, um, but if he keeps hanging around with them, like that might be put, in jeopardy you know it's so sad because like all of the boys are so overshadowed by something you know like a, you know whether it's Denny or Teddy's you know father having struggled with PSD or the, you know the reputation of Chris's family and you know only really Gordy and Chris get to escape that and then of course we get the extra tragedy of you know, what happens to Chris when they're adults and, mm-hmm. and he dies. And it's just like, I don't know, it's just extra sad because Chris is sort of right in the end and that Gordy really is the only one to get away, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that last scene where he's watching them all on the way and saying what became of them is very, very sad. But like in that nostalgic kind of sad where it's like, I want, I want, I want to seek out that kind of sad, <laughs> you know, like it feels, it almost feels good to, to sort of like cathartic or something. Like, I don't yeah. know. Yes. It's like, well, this movie and the song um, <laughs> that it draws its name from, I think was one of the first times where like, I ever felt sad you know, like as a kid, but was okay about feeling sad. Right. Does that make sense? And I don't think I obviously didn't fully understand that at the time, but like, I knew the movie made me sad, but I kept coming back to it. Right. You know, that kind of sad. So I was like, something was there. And and it's definitely changed over the years, you know, like how I've perceived the movie kid versus now, but like, 
yeah, it's it's good, it's good sad. Um, and the boys are, I love that like nothing about this movie is like really treacly or saccharine or anything. Like they don't really say anything to each other when they get back. There's no sort of like grand reflection between all of them, you know, that like are like, oh, here's what we learned or whatever, you know, like it's just sort of like, okay, off we go and we'll see you on Monday. But like, we can still feel that like they're all deeply changed and like they know that, I don't know, that the world isn't as safe as they thought it was or it doesn't work the way they thought it did you know yeah yeah no I like it not really sort of like spelling it out it's just you know like again going back to that last line of like you know I never had any friends later on like the ones I had when I was 12 Jesus does anyone like that sort of like sums up like you know I think everything that you could take from from those scenes and like you know the, the sort of like you know sadness that comes from losing it without realizing at the time that you are yeah so i wanted to ask you a couple questions that i'd be curious about your thoughts for um how do you interpret the scene where gordy sees the deer Mm -hmm. um the morning their final morning of the adventure right before they find the body and he chooses not to tell them, you know, the other boys that he saw it. What do you, what does that mean to you? Or how do you interpret that moment? Because a lot of people, you know, hop onto a message board or something here and there. Like that, there's a lot of debate around what that's supposed to represent. It's interesting because I feel like in a couple other pieces of media that I engage with pretty well, or at least can think of off the top of my head, use deer as symbolism. Um, like, you know, you know, in the queen, for example, like there was a lot of interpretation about what the deer represented. I took it to represent, um, you know, Diana to yeah. the queen, like, you know, this thing that was hounded and shot and, you know, yada, yada, that's, you know, it's all in thing, but that's kind of what it represented was the death of Princess Diana and then the subsequent, like, you know, potential death of the monarchy and that sort of thing. Um, in the video game, Red Dead Redemption 2, the deer represents, there's a buck that will show up if you're playing your character with high honor. Um, like it shows up if you're playing low honor, a wolf shows up, but you get a deer. Um, inter- like it'll just occasionally show up in the game in a sort of cutscene to tell you that like, you know, you're playing a good guy, basically. So that's what it, it um, represents there. Um, you know, it's, I feel like in, in the world of like what we know ends up happening with the characters and that sort of thing, um, it's sort of, to me, kind of the moment that Gordy realizes that Chris is right and that, you know, he, you know, that represents sort of his future and his, you know, acceptance of that future. Cause I think a lot of, 
the thing going on with Gordy is that he's got, you know, he's very like self-pitying and very humble and very quiet and doesn't think very much of himself and kind of him seeing the deer and choosing to keep it to himself is him sort of like for once, you know, for the first time in his life, um, you know, kind of owning the fact that like, no, like I am actually, you know, worth something. I'm pretty good at, at the things I try to do and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm going to get out of here. Um, to me, that's, that's how I take the deer scene. Very well said. Um, I think, sorry, I'm just like thinking, (laughs) trying to speak at the same time, but I would, yeah, I think I agree or at least interpret it very similarly. Um, Cause I, I was never really sure. And I've like thought, you know, at times before I was like, well, maybe it's supposed to be like, he's meeting that inner self for the first time, like sort of what he would become. But I think it's, yeah, I think I interpret it as like the special something that Chris tells him he has. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you said, like accepting that and embracing that and sort of like maybe without him even realizing it being like, I don't deserve to be treated that way by my parents. Mm-hmm. or you know ace or whoever else you know the rest of their their town like you know we get the sense that they're all kind of outcasts and I think that's the moment where Gordy sort of like comes of age mm-hmm. I think for the rest of them it's when they see the body I think for Gordy it's when he has the moment with the deer mm-hmm. and I think that empowers him to take up the gun to protect Chris at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a change from the novella. Yes. Chris picks up the gun. Yeah. Which again, like going back to like switching it to be more about Gordy and Gordy's coming of age. Yeah. It was the, it was the right move. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you expect Chris to pick up the gun. You know? Right. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, it was his, and he's sort of like this, you know, very ideal, perfect friend, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, Yeah. Um, Another thing I thought would be worth talking about, um, and we, and you've touched on this a little bit as well, like, you know, because obviously this movie is very nostalgic for the 50s when it's set, but it's also nostalgic as an 80s movie because that's when it came out. Um, we saw it when we were growing up in the 90s and 2000s. Um, it does seem to keep resonating generation after generation, but like, do you think there's ever going to be a point where that's going to stop? Um, because like, could a move, could this happen now? Right. Um, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, no, I do think about that a lot because, you know, like I think about, you know, I'm at the point in my life where I'm starting to realize, you know, the things that I grew up with are vintage. You know, this even was vintage when we were growing up. You know, this was like probably at least 10 or 12 years old by the first time I saw it, um, yeah. which maybe isn't quite vintage yet, but you know. Um, 
Yeah, and just thinking about like, you know, and it's one of those things where you don't want to apply a value to it like your parents did, where it's like, when I was your age, you know, yada, yada. Because it's like, yeah, what the kids do now when they, how they hang out is very different. Like, you know, at the same time, like, it's not all that different. Like, they still, like, they know what the outside is. They know how to go out and play. But, um, (laughs) you know, like, it's just, you know, thinking back about, like, the games that you played when you were a kid and the kind of ways that you would entertain yourselves and hang out and what it looks like now. And, um, you know, is there room for, you know, would something like this even happen? And would somebody have an iPhone (laughs) you know, stream it. And that's neither yeah. good nor bad, but like, what does it do to like, you know, how is that a different experience, um, you know, than, than this sort of isolated, it's funny because the entire time they're out, I'm like, do their parents, where the hell are their parents? Their parents like give a shit. <laughs> but they don't. Yeah. You know? And that's um, another layer of the tragedy, you know, of it, you know, like, I mean, yeah, we just, for sure with Gordy's parents, he's just like, I'm going to go sleep over. And they're just like, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, like your teens in Danny's room. <laughs> but no, I was thinking like, as I was watching this, like, what's another version of this? Not necessarily an updated version of it, but like, what's, but maybe mm-hmm. that's it. You know, like what's another version of this look like, um, you know, just based on like what life today is like, you know, like, mm-hmm. You know, we wouldn't necessarily have an issue with, uh, you know, a, a dad having PTSD um, or like it would be a different sort of mental health issue, um, you know, and like, you know, like I was, I was sitting there thinking, I was like, well, what would this look like if it was like a bunch of girls? Like what, you know, what does it look like if it's a bunch of teenage girls doing it or, you know, a mixed gender group? or like you know anything like that um and I think you could like really get into the weeds about what different groups of people would look like um I think as a kid while I definitely didn't you know didn't do this I could definitely see myself being like oh yeah like let's go fucking do this like this sounds so cool um you know, because we definitely, I think, you know, like we went traipsing around, you know, in the woods, we went down to the river, you know, we went places we weren't supposed to go, um, yeah. you know, for various, you know, various reasons and that sort of thing. But um, I think for me, it's not so much, you know, will this continue to hold up and that sort of thing. It's like, um, you know, what does this version, what does this look like to, to you know, what would this, you know, if I sat down and wanted to write this exact story, you know, what would we be doing? How would it look? You know, like, um, we definitely, you know, they make it, they talk about one point about hitchhiking. I remember my dad would talk about hitchhiking as like just a thing you could do back in the day without getting murdered or arrested. (laughs) Um, you know, and just like, you know, what does that look like? Even for me, let alone somebody who's younger than me. Mm-hmm. yeah I was like I definitely like could not have disappeared for like a day yeah. and a half or whatever Absolutely. um yeah but like you said like yeah like you know we did have like some free reign in terms of like a radius we were allowed to go and then sometimes we would sneakily go beyond that radius or like you know you're I remember 
when I would get dragged to my sister's soccer games and didn't want to sit through the whole thing, I'd like go traipsing off into the woods or like up the hill and into the rocks and yeah. do random shit. And I wonder sometimes about like the helicopter parents of today and whether such things would be possible. Right. And I think like you were saying, yeah, this story would have to look different but I think the appeal of this story will keep going because at the end of the day it's not so much about the adventure as it is about you know everything we've been talking about right these notions of friendship and childhood and memory um, and these things that are a lot more universal um, that appeal to people and draw people in and and sometimes that's a little bit different um for each of us like you were saying you know before it's not like you hung around with like three other boys or whatever you know right. like, you know and i i didn't either actually mm-hmm. um all of my f- friends like growing up on my street were girls um yeah, and the thing is, it's like, uh, even when that's the case, I can see myself and my friends, like, in some version yeah. of this, you know, like, I can see, like, yeah, you know, like, it wasn't as that, as melodramatic, or, you know, anything as it was then, but, like, you know, <laughs> like, you everyone buy knows. Pepsis for two cents, or whatever they buy it for. But, yeah, or whatever they do. No, but that's the thing, right, and that's, the, like, everyone knows one of these kids, whether you were them or you were friends with one of them or you just knew them, like yeah. we all know yeah. or knew a Vern and a Teddy and a Chris and a Gordy. Right. Like I remember the kids that my mom said I wasn't allowed to hang out with because she didn't like, you know, whatever their family or, you know, the way their parents behaved or something like that. And, you know, I knew the kid who was like clearly like needed to be on ADHD medication and like was a huge troublemaker because of it. Right. And I knew the older kids who were a little bit afraid to go, like they weren't, you know, doing what Ace was doing, but you were a little bit afraid to go near them. And, totally. totally. Yeah. And, those were, and those were the boys in my neighborhood. They yeah. were like slightly older than me and I didn't want anything to do with them yeah to me they were they were like ace i mean yeah yeah like they were never outwardly mean to to me i don't think they gave a shit about me and my friends but like they were scary because they were older you know they weren't that much older but they were these older boys who would do things that we weren't allowed to do like we had a retention ditch that we would um always be you know where we would sled in the in the winter but in the summer you could go into like it's kind of like a tunnel like an it with the um the tunnel uh, they go into it was one of those deals and they would go into it and my parents would be like you're not allowed to go in there and like <laughs> they'd like make a show of going in there in front of us because you know they knew we weren't allowed to go so they'd be like look at us down here doing this and, you know yeah yeah i just like <sighs> I'm just remembering some of those older kids, those older boys, and just like, I have memories of them being like casually mean to me, but I feel like the more objective version is that they just didn't care Mm -hmm. enough about like any of us 
younger kids, but that in itself was almost like, oh my God, like yeah. terrifying. I remember and, even being afraid sometimes to get candy from them at Halloween because they would give uh, out candy. They were of the age where they would give out candy. They like wouldn't, yeah. And like, it always made me nervous to go up and ask them for candy. To go to that one. Yeah, I was just like, they were, and they were just like, they were just rougher too. Like I, you know, they always wanted to do, you know, something that just was like a lot more physical or like, if they, like, if all the kids were playing Red Rover, it felt like they were like doing the best they could to like get your arm out of its socket when they broke your part of the chain. And it was like, can we just calm down and like chill? But, um. But so of the, of the four, who were you most like at that age? Um, or maybe who do you identify with the most? I mean, I feel like I identify with a mixture of like Vern and Gordy. Like, okay. you know, like, yeah, like, you know, I was very introspective, very quiet. I definitely very young was into like, stories and that sort of thing and writing stories and telling weird goofy stories and making up weird backstories for the games we were playing mm-hmm. like I remember I always had really elaborate backstories in my head at least sometimes I'd, I'd share them for like who we were and why we were playing like hide and seek right <laughs> like why this is the situation um but um and then like Vern and that like, yeah, like I think I definitely had some like self-consciousness stuff. Like I felt like my friends, cause I was kind of younger too amongst my friends. Um, like I was definitely one of the younger kids and I always felt like they were gonna leave me behind, you know, like they were gonna go off to do other things. And I was just sort of their like younger dorkier friend who, you know, was just somebody they had hanging around that sort of thing so I think like a mixture of the two of them yeah I could see that obviously not having known you then but (laughs) having known you for a while as an adult yeah what about you probably mostly Gordy um for very similar reasons I think at different times or even just moments of my youth I would have been all for them you know (laughs) but mostly Gordy. Um, I was kind of quiet, you know, I didn't necessarily like um, whatever, showing my true colors or, or doing X, Y, and Z around like everybody. But if I was with my close group of friends, then I would be more open. Um, obviously the storytelling angle, uh, sometimes you know that was welcome by the other kids and sometimes it was like no shut the fuck up like we're just Uh we're just playing like you know kickball we we don't need an elaborate like um but then I always had my good friend Sadie who was always willing to come up with backstories with me Uh and yeah and uh and sensitive to it I think Gordy is is maybe the most sensitive of the four and mm-hmm. that was definitely me in a number of different ways mm-hmm. I think I would like to think that I was Chris because he was just so cool but it was more that 
I think I wanted a Chris in my life. Um, and I didn't right. have yeah. that necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, because Chris is, as we've talked about, he's such an ideal of a perfect friend, right? Mm-hmm. And he's almost angelic. Um, and most children aren't actually like that. Um, but yeah, I, I wish I would like watch Stand By Me and like just wish I had a Chris Chambers. Um, okay. But um, the last thing I thought would be maybe be worth talking about in terms of some analysis is um, the Lardass sequence, mm-hmm. the pie eating <laughs> sequence. Um, and I guess just starting real quickly, like, what do you think this sequence does? And do you think it's necessary? I mean, by today's standards, I would say it's not necessary, or at least, <laughs> like, you know, like, it's definitely um, a product. I mean, unfortunately, it also might get made now, but I think it is very much a product of its time in terms of its content. Like, I understand it's like, this is exactly the type of story a kid that age would come up with and tell and like really just embellish um, the the details and, you know, what they were doing in the movie was wanting to show it. It's, um, you know, how he would have thought of it in his head, how his friends would have experienced it. Um, and that sort of thing. But um, it's one of those things where like, it's an easy thing to cut for time if you need to, like even from just like a, a logistical standpoint. But um, no, I mean, I think, you know, it's looking at it, you know, with my today's eye and even like my, you know, more educated eye of like the past five years in terms of various things. Um, I think it's kind of like a, it could have been a much, like there's any story you could put in there that some kid is gonna, you know, like it didn't, it doesn't, today, you know, if you remade this movie, I think you would want to change the content of, of that story. But um, yeah, like that's my, my take on it. At least it wasn't the other story that's in the novella. Yeah that like horrendously awful like I don't even know how you would describe that other story weird gross sexy romp yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the lard ass apparently Reiner was didn't want to do the lard ass thing yeah you know, and kind of got pressured into it I thought like I get why it's there and like, it makes sense to me. I'm like, okay, this, yeah, this is what a, a 12 year old boy's story would look like probably. Mm-hmm. But I just, it's, I don't know, it's icky. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, it's like, it's not icky now. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like by today's, like, yes, by today's standards, it's icky in terms of like, what in a we different society way. have allowed ourselves to like, um, you know, become conscious of, but I think for certain groups of people, it was always icky, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's one of those things, but, um, yeah, I think it definitely is, um, it's also just aesthetically upsetting. 
Yes. Yeah. I hate, I hate them. And like, it's so funny watching them do like the very fake projectile, but like they clearly don't even care that it looks so right. Right. Um, because it's so Which ridiculous. Kind of, yeah. Cause it's like this cartoony version yeah. of, you know, of their town, you know, like, yeah. But, um, you know, it's just watching it and like, just knowing that it's like, oh, this doesn't need to like on the one hand, yes, 100% a 12 year old boy would write the story and call it that and this would be the content like that 100% checks out to me yeah that being said and we don't have to like you know there's plenty of other things about this movie that are um true to to how it would be you know there are some things that we can kind of admit I think like all the dick jokes yes (laughs) that's true to porn like to me it feels similar as like you know, like in a lot of King adaptations, they take out the slurs that his characters say in the books, because even if, sure, historically accurate, if you want to make that argument, fine, somebody would have been talking that way, but we as a society don't need to hear it again, you know what I mean, to know that that that's how people talked. Yeah. Like, I think it's a similar vein as, as that. That's a good point. Yeah. I just figured we should touch on if it, you know, if only briefly, because it is that weird. It's almost like an intermission. It's almost like a interlude. It's mm-hmm. this weird, you know, burst of color, like in what is otherwise a very sort of like muted yeah. tone poem of a movie. But I just, yeah. And yeah, just on the on the physical level, every time it gets to that, I'm just like, ugh. Even when he like, I mean, obviously they show, I think after the vomiting starts, they show him drinking the castor oil or whatever and the egg and yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like that. Well, um, this is a good segue, I guess, into our next segment, which is one good scare. Um, and that's when we each say what we find to be the most frightening moment of this film. Um, and yeah, though this is not a horror film, there are, I think, a couple of moments that could qualify. The pie eating contest is certainly a moment of revulsion for me, mm-hmm. not necessarily like horror. Um, do you have one? I think for me, and this is like obvious, but it's always going to be the train sequence just because like they set it up so well very early of like, you know, talking about trains and being able to feel the vibrations and getting off the tracks when a train's coming that you just know something's going to happen. And when they walk and come up to that long trellis over the reservoir, it's like, oh shit. Like you just, you know, they're not getting, like we're not here because they get across the trellis and nothing happens. <laughs> and like, although it turns out fine, it's like just, <laughs> it's like just such a tense like thing for me. And it's like such a like tense sequence. And every time I'm like, maybe this time they won't accidentally get hit by the train. <laughs> maybe they'll just wait for the next train to go by. Yeah, that and I guess I will say also the scene when you fall into the water I was surprised you didn't go right to that. Because I thought about it a lot because 
you know, obviously like my number one fear is to walk into a puddle and find out it's like Something's just in there. a cliff <laughs> no, off and then yeah. you're like in there with things. But um, I think the train <laughs> sequence just the way that it, it creates tension from the second they're on the tracks and you know at some point they're gonna they're gonna have a run in with a train. And it has that like pure sort of thriller element to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um Mine's mine's the leeches. No. It's just like ugh. Um, I feel like movies like this, by the way, made us think leeches were like a bigger thing in life, kind of like the quicksand thing. Like, have you ever quicksand. encountered a leech in your life? Here's the thing, and this is why this is my scariest moment. Yes, oh. because um, the camp that I went to every summer, the the one lake the smaller lake that was more just like a large pond mm-hmm. was used for um, canoeing. Leech breeding. It, and it's <laughs> leech breeding. And they told us every year, don't like, don't mess around and tip over. And if you do get out as quickly as possible, cause there's leeches in there. And that always freaked me out. Yeah. And- See, that's how I feel about every water. However you feel there, that's me, every water. Well, and then the one year, I don't know if it was like the first of this, maybe it was like a couple years or whatever, I didn't see any leeches and there was nothing happened with them. So I kind of got to this point where I was just like, maybe they just tell us that because they don't want us like smacking each other with the oars, like off the Mm -hmm. canoe or whatever. And there's not actually leeches in the, the little pond. But then one year, this kid... I don't even, I don't remember if they fell in or if they were just like waiting around the edge, like got leeches on her leg and it was gross. Yeah. Like, you know, I had to get like peeled off. off. Yeah. And and you can scar from leeches. Um, Yeah, they got little little teeth. They'll really get in there. Um, So I also just have the visceral reaction of poor Gordy with the leech on his balls. Yeah. No, it's just that, like, leeches are, are freaky, and, like, that's one thing I definitely would freak out about, like, that is an example of things I think about being in water, um, also just, like, I don't know, like, a, a fish or an alligator, I don't know, like, I don't like going in, <laughs> a that's, like, yeah, like, that's my number one type of body of water there, small enclosed pond situation mm-hmm. not happening, but, um, yeah, so you know, it's a, it's a freaky one. So you hate small bodies of water more than large open? Yeah, I can do the ocean a little bit better. I don't love it. Like I was watching (laughs) when I was at the um, beach yesterday, I was watching surfers surf. You know, that's what they do, surf. Um, And just watching them sitting on the boards, thinking about their feet dangling in the water was kind of getting me stressed out a little bit. Um, But uh, I can do it a little bit like I won't spend a ton of time like I'll maybe go out to my waist and come back but the second I brush something or I don't know if you've ever had the crabs that will pinch the shit out of your feet oh yeah have you ever had that yeah yeah like that I'm like eh, I'm out but um no it's definitely worse for me when it's an enclosed body of water in something like a pond like that or like you know a filled in ditch right you get more murky you, it's really it's harder to see yeah and you're closer to whatever's in there like you don't like that's the thing with the ocean too is it's so big that like you know i'm not gonna you know 
run into anything super scary as long as I stay close to shore. Although I guess there are plenty of sharks that love that exact level of water. Indeed. But um, yeah. Well, luckily no leeches here. So we'll move now into the view from the closet where we take a moment to talk about how we can view the film or the material um, and question from an LGBTQ plus lens. Um, I think with Stand By Me, there's a lot and it's relatively obvious, um, which would be the angle that Chris and Gordy or just one of them have romantic feelings for the other. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I definitely, um, you know, like just watching it, especially in that scene where it's just like, they seem to have, like he calls Chris his best friend, but they seem to have like a, a kind of relationship between each other that they don't have with the other two and they have sort of that late night talk together and that sort of thing. Um, and I definitely, you know, gets the, get the feeling that, you know, Chris definitely has like very deep feelings for Gordy, no matter, you know, what the nature of them are, but um, yeah, you know, you could, I could, you know, you definitely see it. And I think as we, we're kind of on the same page of like being of two minds with the, the, um, reading of it where on the one hand like yes it definitely feels very much like um it's a romantic um you know it's romantic feelings between two young boys um for each other and like it's very sweet and and very very nice and then on the other hand you know like I like to see like vulnerable sweet relationships between um hetero men that it's just like yeah like, they can have close friendships like that without it being gay um, yeah and I like having both of those, both are true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like, I don't want to say when I was younger, but when I was like a younger gay, a younger mm -hmm. open gay. Not outfit. younger me, a younger gay. <laughs> yes. yeah, um, when I was like, I don't know, like around when I first came out mm -hmm. and I would think about this movie, I loved the idea that maybe they were attracted to each other. I would think back on watching it as a kid and not realizing it or not admitting it to myself at the time, but like really wanting to see them kiss when they have that conversation, just the two of them. Yeah. And as I've gotten older, I have shifted away from that. Um, and while I can still appreciate that angle and I like that it's an option and mm -hmm. a potential reading, especially because River Phoenix was definitely part of my gay awakening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> big, big part, you know, this movie was a big part of it. But I think I prefer the interpretation that they are just, they're really close friends and it's a good model of a healthy hetero male friendship um they're willing to touch each other and hug each other and cry in front of each other and it doesn't compromise their friendship or make anything weird or mm -hmm. 
whatever. Like they're just kids, you know, like, um, and I think back, like when I was around their age and like late elementary school and middle school and like my group of friends, when I finally sort of was like, got a group of other boys as friends, like there were four of us and I was closer with one of the other boys and we, we would have conversations that were sort of just us and that would go a little bit deeper. Yeah. That sort of our other two friends who, while we both like loved and really cared for, maybe weren't quite mature enough to talk about that stuff with us. Mm-hmm. And so it happened a little bit later than I wanted to, but I think it was like, I finally found my Chris Chambers. Mm-hmm. And so as I've gotten older and sort of made those connections that I hadn't made when I was younger, I prefer the interpretation that it's just a model of good male friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, are there any other potential? I mean, I, yeah, I mean, there's also like, and I feel like this is just the nature of the way sometimes Stephen King writes his bullies. I feel like there's always sort of like a layer of tortured potential closetedness within. Um, it's most evident with like um, Henry Bowers and uh, it, because there's obviously some actual like romantic potential shit going on with him and a couple of right. his other sort of cronies. Um, but um, especially because like, you know, Kiefer Sutherland's throwing around like the F slur and that sort of thing at people, like very much projecting that onto people. And so sometimes it feels like it's sort of like a, I don't know if bad faith is the right term, but more of one of those icky kind of um, representations, not even representation, but, you know, evident of, of closetedness that sometimes happens. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, well, then I think if there's nothing else, we'll move into our final section, mm-hmm. uh, which is legacy, legacy. What is a legacy? Um, and that's how the film has come to be regarded since it's released. Um, and so uh stand by me was released on vhs on march 19th 1987 by columbia home pictures video and then on dvd on august 29th 2000 the dvd featured a director's commentary with rob reiner um and a featurette on the making of the film um we didn't talk a ton about reiner's um direction of the film um i guess i'll just quickly say that i find it to be pretty impressive. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, he is one of those directors that like had an absolutely incredible run. Like, you know, he had done Spinal Tap right before this, which was like the peak mockumentary. You know, he would go on to like, you know, sort of create like the perfect archetype for like so many other different genres, like Stand By Me and Princess Bride and um, I don't know. He just like, this guy was just knocking it out of the park at this point in the eighties. Um, mm-hmm. but anyway, good direction. So he 
does a director's commentary um, for the DVD. Uh, the film was reissued on Blu-ray in 2011 by Sony Home Entertainment. Had all the same features. And then again on 4K Blu-ray in 2019. Um, Stand By Me received the Jackie Coogan Award for Outstanding Contribution to Youth Through Motion Pictures for the four ensemble actors at the eighth Youth and Film Awards. It was also nominated for a Writers Guild Award, three Independent Spirit Awards, two Golden Globes, one Directors Guild Award, and nominated for the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, but lost to A Room with a View. Screenwriter uh, Ray Gideon has admitted that he can no longer watch the movie in light of River Phoenix's death. Um, it's just too hard. And uh, co-screenwriter Bruce Evans has only revisited the film in order to show it to his daughter. Um, in his 2011 piece, 25 Years of Stand By Me, Alex Hannaford explored how the movie stands as one of the greatest films to come out of the 80s and holds a special place in the hearts of many Gen Xers and early millennials, but that its charm and depth resonates with generations both older and younger which he says is a very rare feat to accomplish. And we kind of touched on that with our question mm -hmm. of the appeal of this movie. Yeah. Um, many other writers and think pieces throughout the years have noted and explored the film for being a timeless exploration of youthful nostalgia, the apex of the 80s kids movie, and a coming of age classic that necessarily gets better with time. Um, that last part is a direct quote from Charles Bramisco from Rolling Stone. In a 2017 Reddit AMA, Rob Reiner said that Stand By Me is his personal favorite of his own films. Um, I believe he has also commented at different points that it is difficult for him to go back to though because of mm -hmm. um, River Phoenix. Uh, Brownsville, Oregon, where the majority of the film, of the movie was filmed and where they flipped the setting from Maine to Oregon. Yeah, that was weird just because I guess, um, has held a Stand By Me festival every year since 2007. Uh, their 2010 celebration for the film's 25th anniversary had a special Q&A with the cast and crew, a pie eating contest, of course, and a special outdoor screening of the film. And I totally want to go to Brownsville, Oregon. Also, I'm sorry if you hear this. Sorry, going <laughs> They're, they're on the, you know where they are? They're going on the way to the Stand By Me Festival. Yeah. They're like, yeah, we're in. Um, and in 2013, Brownsville designated July 23rd as an official holiday for the city, Stand By Me Day. Uh, they commemorate the occasion by embedding a penny in the street at the location where the fictional Vern Tessio finds one at the end of the movie. Oh, cute. Yeah, when he's like, eh, hey, penny. Yeah. Which is such a nice little nod to... Um, how he's always like chasing money or whatever in his mm. little epilogue. Um, Stand By Me has been referenced and homaged in numerous other films, including Boys in the Hood, Now and Then, the films of Quentin Tarantino, Attack the Block, Mud, The Kings of Summer, and Love and Monsters. Um, Dan Mangan has a song, Row Houses, that's based on the film and is sung from the perspective of uh, the Gordy Lachance character. Uh, the film has been referenced in numerous television programs, including Seinfeld, The Simpsons, Rick and Morty, Euphoria, and Family Guy, 
where it's parodied in the season seven episode, Three Kings, featuring Richard Dreyfus reprising his role as the narrator. Nice. Which we also touched on. Um, the child actors trying out for Stranger Things were asked to read scenes from Stand By Me as part of their audition. Um, and so the season one episode of Stranger Things, The Body, was titled so in homage to the source novella. And um, the film is also referenced in the original Generation 1 Pokemon games for Game Boy. That would be uh, versions red, blue, green, and yellow. Oh my God. Which, <laughs> if you talk to your character, the player character's mother, she tells you that the movie she's watching on TV has four boys walking on railroad tracks. And then she says, I better go too. And oh she leaves. <laughs> <laughs> which is just like the best. That's nice. I had, I definitely had at least one or two of those Pokemon games. Hell yeah. I. Speaking of nostalgia, I get really nostalgic for those games in the summertime because that's when like, you know, all the neighborhood kids, we would like take our Game Boys outside and like trade each other and just- Yeah, the little cartridges. Yeah, and just like sit on the deck or put our feet in the pool and play and yeah. always make me want to play again. But um, yeah, that's- I think more or less going to bring us to the end of our main discussion for the body slash stand by me. Um, is there anything we didn't touch upon that you really wanted to, Miss Mel? I don't think so. Okay. okay. In that case, I'm going to hit you with our closing question, okay. which is if you were in the train track situation, would you make a run for it or jump into the into the river? The thing is, is like, I don't know the, how true it is, but I feel like everything in media has told me jumping into the water is no different, like from a certain height as like, you know, hitting cement, uh -huh. unless you like hit it in a very specific way. But I don't know. I don't know that I could run faster than a train. So I think I'd try and find some sort of, um, I don't know, like middle ground where I jump a little bit or I get to the point, kind of like where they did, where they jumped. They didn't jump, but they just fell off to the side. Yeah. Um, like I would try and get as far as I could, I think, while running and then just, you know, take the L if it seemed like, well, I'm either going to get hit by a train or have to jump off the edge. So it is what it is, right? Yeah. Um, what about you? I think I would make a run for it. I guess basically what you said and to, to a certain point. Yeah. Where if I then felt like it was not going to happen, then I would take the chance of the jump i it, they're pretty high yeah. you know like and i don't know i forget i don't remember exactly like how high it is you have to be before like a fall like that would break your bone like the water would mm -hmm. break your bones or something but i don't know it just seems really high yeah so i would make a run for it i think too. yeah and just see what happens all right, well, that 
is going to close out our um, track through the nostalgic countryside of uh, Portland, Maine, Oregon, Castle Rock, wherever the hell we were. Um, and episode 99. Um, yeah. Before we tell you about big old episode 100, Miss Mel is going to let you know just in general where you can find all things Splatter Chatter. Sure. I like saying that like my good to go back to Red Dead Redemption 2, the character, the cowboy character in that. He says sure a lot. So sure. sometimes I like to say it that way. Anyway, um, you can find us on Twitter. That's where we're most active at Splatter Chatter 666. That's Splatter Chatter minus all the vowels. Um, but start typing it in and we'll pop right up. Um, you can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can send us an ask on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can slide into the DMs on Instagram at splatterchatter666 on Instagram. And you can leave good old comments on the blog at splatter-chatter.com. Correct, correct. And um, when we next come back to you, as we said, it is going to be episode 100, Mm -hmm. which is pretty wild. Um, We are going to go big, but we might need to go even bigger. Um, because we are going to uh, keep talking about Richard Dreyfus as we take a look at the OG blockbuster and the pinnacle of the creature feature, Jaws. 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 Yeah, it's obviously, you know, something that's... Uh, pretty big to tackle because of what it is, but it is the 100th episode after all. So we figured yeah. why not? And it's perfectly timed for our July episode. Yeah. So summer, summer time in and, you know, just in time for all those uh, sharks to come back to Cape Cod. <laughs> it's about <laughs> the time they make their return. So, so you yeah. bougie folks on the Cape, Watch out. Oh, you bougie folks on the cape. Um, yeah, be on the lookout for those fins and be on the lookout for episode 100. And uh, until then, um, we want to remind you all to keep up the creep. And for now, we're going to say au revoir. Adios. And the moon is the only light we'll see.